3 p.m. The Sheriff's Department Oversight Board meeting is now in session. On behalf of the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board, we would like to thank the staff at SFGovTV for providing technical assistance to broadcast and record this afternoon's meeting. You may view this afternoon's broadcast on cable channel 26. Let's please stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. <coughs> I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Dan, please call the roll. <clears throat> yes, Madam President. Member Afuha Mango. Present. Afuha Mango is present. Vice President Carrion. Present. Carry on is present. Member Wynn. Present. Wynn is present. President Sue. Present. Sue is present. We have a quorum. Is there a motion to excuse uh, members Palmer and Wechter? So move. Do I have a second? Second. Any objections? The motion passes. Um, are there any announcements, Dan? Yes. <clears throat> this is the regular in-person monthly public meeting of the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board. Members of the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board will attend this meeting in person. Members of the public are invited to observe the meeting in person except for persons with disabilities requiring reasonable accommodations. Only members of the public attending the meeting in person will have an opportunity to provide public comment. When public comment is called during each line item, the public is welcome to address the board for up to two minutes on that line item. There will be general public comment at the end of the meeting for items that did not appear on this afternoon's agenda but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available for members of the public who are present in, in person by lining up against the far wall and approaching the podium when it is free. You will have two minutes to provide public comment. The first tone will alert you you have 30 seconds to complete your public comment. The second tone yeah. will alert okay. you that your two minutes are up. That's the end of announcements. Thank you. Please call the first agenda item. Calling line item one, adoption of minutes action item. Review and approve the minutes from the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board regular meeting held on February 2nd, 2024. <coughs> It's like really in my face. Um, do I have a motion to approve the minutes? Second, right? Or is it uh, a I need a motion first. Motion, okay. Um, what's the correct term? Uh, motion to approve the minutes? Yeah. Okay. Do so I have a move. motion? Yeah, so move. There it is. And do I have a second on that motion? A second. Um, all those in favor? Oh no. Aye. We have to do public comment. Oh. And then oh, I'm sorry, I have public to comment. Public comment. For <clears throat> members of the public who would like to make public comment on line item one, adoption of minutes, please line up. Uh, please approach the podium when it is free. There appears to be no public comment. I'll call the roll on the adoption of minutes. Member Afuha Mango? Aye. Afuha Mango is aye. Vice President Carrion? Aye. Carrion is aye. Member Wynn? Win is aye, President Sue. Aye. 
Stu is aye. The motion passes. The minutes from the February 2nd, 2024 meeting are adopted. Uh, the next agenda item, please. <clears throat> Calling line item two, Inspector General report, informational item. Inspector General Terry Wiley's monthly report from the Office of the Inspector General. Um, good afternoon, members of the Sheriff's Oversight Board. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, you know, I, I was looking at the calendar and it looks like I've actually been on the job exactly eight weeks. So uh, I thought it was, this would be a great opportunity to update you as to what we've accomplished over the last eight weeks uh, on the job. Well, when I first arrived on January 8th, uh, of course I needed to go through an orientation with both the city, but also the Department of Police Accountability and uh, I want to thank Paul Henderson and the uh, Department of Police Accountability and Marshall Kine uh, because they had a very nice uh, orientation laid out for me. Uh, sometimes unrealistic <laughs> to get so much <laughs> done in a day, but we got most of it done. Um, and and part uh, a big part of it was just explaining to me the. Uh, orienting me with the Department of Police Accountability, the facilities, uh, uh, the resources, the divisions, and the responsibilities and, and the systems uh, that they employ. Uh, that went on for the first week. And in the, in the second week, uh, beginning, uh, I believe, yeah, it was in the second week, we began um, uh, becoming more familiar with uh, the operations as they are basically uh, taking care of a lot of the responsibilities of the of the inspector general's office in terms of handling uh, the cases that come out of the sheriff's department while we get up and running. Now, another interesting thing that happened in those first couple of weeks was I attended uh, the core training with uh, the current academy class of the sheriff's department. So. Once they finish the Sheriff's Academy, they go through a six-week core training. And so I was able to participate with the, the latest Academy class in some of their core classes. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in all of them. But some of the ones that I did participate in was like the uh, class on the use of force, uh, the class on the use of, of the... Uh, uh, well, it was all, all the defense mechanisms that they utilize uh, in, in their training. And uh, I was very, very impressed with the training. I thought the instructors were really, really good. Um, and so I, I came away uh, feeling very uh, comfortable with what I saw um, in, the, in, the, in the core training. IG Williams, were you able to do the, um, the simulation? Uh, you know, unfortunately that day, I, had, I was double booked and I wasn't able to attend the, the, that training, but, uh, and that was one of the things I was really looking forward to. Hopefully yeah. you can. I've yeah. done it um, as a prosecutor on these issues before, and it, yeah. was, it was really interesting. Yeah, no, I, and I mean, uh, I, I'm really thankful that the Sheriff's Department has been uh, very uh, open and, and helpful, uh, so that pretty much anything we want to see, anything we want to do, that... Um, and so I anticipate that at some point when things kind of slow up, I'll have an opportunity to get back out there. Yes. Great. And then I was going to say in October, um, members will have an opportunity if you haven't um, gone to the community um, uh, events at the jail. And then they, 
they do allow um, working on the simulation and a tour through operations. Great. And it also includes the junior cadets from high school, which is really nice to see the youth out there. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Oh, I also saw their taser training, which was, I, I got to be honest, I learned so much about the taser in that training. Uh, <laughs> and so now when I see any kind of a taser incident on video, I, I'm looking at it through completely different eyes now because now I understand how it operates and... Um, and kind of the whole theory behind the operation of the taser. So that was, that was really good. Uh, I also completed the mandatory training of the city and county of San Francisco, which, which it, it actually shocked me of how, how much stuff that they, you go through uh, in order to onboard with the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and, and I was actually very, very impressed with how much of the training I had to go through just to onboard with the city and county. Uh, I completed a number of mandatory trainings, uh, implicit bias, ethics, and sunshine laws, whistleblower program, and just a series of trainings uh, that they require. Uh, I also attended the San Francisco New Employee Orientation, which was a 9 to 12 uh, training that was uh, actually very, very good. Um, so I, I, I was very impressed with that. Um, then probably one of the most important things that we've been doing over the last uh, several weeks is meeting with a lot of our stakeholders. Uh, so I've met with Supervisor Shimon Walton, who of course uh, was the sponsor of the legislation creating the Office of Inspector General. I've met with Sheriff uh, Miyamoto. We had a great meeting um, and really talked in depth about a lot of things that we wanna do from the, with the IG's office and what some of their expectations are and where we kind of meet. Uh, and so I uh, was very impressed with Sheriff Miyamoto. Uh, we also met with the sheriff's legal team. I spent about ha uh, a morning with their legal team talking about a lot of the issues that, that they're seeing come up and, and things that uh, uh, you know we anticipate uh, looking out for, but also very, very impressed with their legal team. Uh, I've met with the public defender's policy team, so I know that uh, Angela is here today to do a presentation. I met with her and, and the public defender's uh, team, and you know we just, we just had a general discussions, and, and we anticipate having a lot more meetings, and, uh, and I, I anticipate that we'll be meeting on a regular basis, uh, too. I've met with uh, Paul Henderson, uh, the executive director of the Department of Police Accountability was kind enough to take me on a tour of the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and I probably personally met about half of the members of the Board of Supervisors, but I met all of their staffs, uh, their staff members. Uh, I've, I've met with the mayor's budget team. I've met with the mayor's chief of staffs. Um, I've met with the San Francisco Jail Co Justice Coalition uh, which is the coalition, interestingly, that was the group that um, was the, the, they were the group that got the uh, sheriff's department to, and the city and county of San Francisco to do away with uh, commissary fees, uh, phone fees. They, they got funding or they found funding for the tablets that the inmates now use. So I think that they've had a real positive impact on 
on being incarcerated, on the, on, the, on the life of those that are incarcerated and making life much easier uh, for their families. So I was <clears throat> very impressed with what they've done so far. And we also agreed to meet on a, on a rolling basis, you know, as things come up. Uh, I've, I've joined the Bar Association of San, uh, Bar Association of San Francisco's uh, task force, which uh, is a task force of literally everybody involved within the criminal justice system. And we meet, uh, um, I think, once every four weeks on Friday, and we just discuss issues of the day. And one of the issues that, that's like currently being discussed, um, although I wasn't able to attend the last meeting, the meeting before that, what was being discussed was the, uh, uh, the policies involving the use of, uh, what do you call it, not the, the, not the flying robots, but the uh, drones, drones. Uh, drone policy. And, and it was a very interesting discussion. And so I, uh, I, I came away actually very impressed with that group, but there were a lot of smart people on the group and there were members from the Department of Police Accountability also on that task force. And so um, uh, we also met with Ali Riker who is the director of the Sheriff's Department programming, because one of the things we wanted to find out was we wanted a list of all of the Sheriff's programs uh, so that we have a working knowledge on what are all of the programs that they offer to the inmates and their families. And so we had a great meeting with Allie Riker. I was very impressed with her and, um, and just her knowledge of, of uh, the programs that they're providing, but also where where things can be improved, and and that's always uh, uh, a positive. Then we dealt with the budget. Uh, we've worked with the DPA's finance team, and I, I really want to give a special thanks to Sharice Yao and Nicole Armstrong because they've worked very closely with our team uh, in terms of preparing our budget uh, for. Uh, this budget cycle. Uh, we've met with the mayor's budget office. Um, we've also, well, we've met with the mayor's budget office multiple times. And uh, I think everyone understands um, that it's important that, uh, you know, we receive some uh, budget funding uh, in order to meet our obligations of the Office of Inspector General. Uh, we made two public presentations uh, of our budget, uh, one on January 24th in City Hall in room 416, and we made a second budget uh, presentation uh, on February 14th, 2024 in room 408. Uh, we finalized and submitted our budget proposal on February 21st, 2024, and uh, I, I would say this about our budget is that we uh, prepared and presented a budget that I think realistically assesses the fact that uh, the city and county of San Francisco is in an unprecedented budget deficit, or they have an unprecedented budget deficit. So we understand that. And I think that the uh, proposal that we presented was very realistic in terms of considering that we're in the type of budget era that we're in, um, you know, we only ask for the, the basic things we need to get the agency off the ground. So I don't think that there were any over asks in our budget proposal. 
We also um, proposed agreements with both the Sheriff's Department and uh, DPA to ensure that they continue, well, in the case of DPA, that they continue the investigations and that nothing is compromised in terms of the Sheriff's investigations uh, while the, o of the OIG obtains funding uh, to hire on board and train staff. Uh, because we, un we understand that one of our challenges is that even when we receive the funding, you know, we still have to uh, hire folks, onboard them, and train them uh, according to our procedures and protocols. And so that's going to take some time. And our agreement that we're seeking to enter into with the Sheriff's Department and DPA takes all of that into, con into consideration. Uh, we also launched a website. Um, we developed and launched that website, and I actually want to thank uh, Dan uh, Leong uh, for his assistance with that website. Um, uh, Dan was the man on the website. Uh, it has links to services and information, um, and we will be updating the website, you know, when as appropriate and as we develop as an agency. And I've also uh, focused on, you know, I think it's very important to raise the public's awareness of the Office of the Inspector General, but I, not only inside San Francisco, not only with the stakeholders, but I think in the greater Bay Area. And so I've participated in a number of speaking engagements. On February 2nd, uh, I was asked to be the keynote speaker in the Silicon City of San Jose, uh, and the Silicon Valley chapter of the NAACP asked me to be their keynote speaker at their Black History Month program. And uh, it was a great opportunity to raise the profile of the Office of the Inspector General. And I had a, a great, great time participating in that program. Uh, last night, or excuse me, before last night, Saturday, uh, we marched in the uh, uh, the San Francisco Lunar New Year Parade. Uh, and that was, I was just telling uh, uh, folks in the audience that it's the biggest parade I've ever personally attended. I mean, I've seen the New York May, uh, uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade. I've seen the Rose Bowl Parade, but a parade that I've actually participated in, I mean, it was just huge. So, I mean, it really, really enjoyed the parade. Um, I thought the city did a great job of putting that parade on. Um, so it was a great time. Last night I was a panelist on a kind of nationwide, uh, well, it went out nationwide, but the focus was on the state of California. And it was called A Conversation with Living Legends of the Largest Black Bar Associations. And uh, it was an honor to be included in that, that group because it was a group of real luminaries. Uh, and it was hosted by the law firm of Dwayne Morris. And, uh, you know, we, we had some great discussions that were very appropriate given that we are at the end of Black History Month. And, um, and I think that also, I think it's programs like that that raise the profile of the Office of Inspector General. Um, so I think as you can see, we've been very busy uh, over the last eight weeks. And we really, uh, and, and this is just the beginning, so we anticipate 
staying on the same pace and trying to accomplish as much as we can uh, in terms of, you know, our main goal is to get the agency up and running so that we are uh, solely responsible for the oversight of the Sheriff's Department. Thank you. And if I recall, um, you also were invited as a special guest to the SFDA's Black History Celebration. I was. Yes, yes I was. <laughs> and I, I really uh, enjoyed that. Um, and, and, you know, there were a lot of people that I knew over there. And, uh, yeah, I had a great time. And, but I think that, that it, that's also a good opportunity to um, get to know folks in the other agencies and, and develop good relationships with them. And uh, so I appreciated the invite, and uh, I think Brooke Jenkins did a fantastic job with that program. So thanks for reminding me about that. If there are and any questions. I was going to say, now you're a member of the uh, Asian American Bar Association of the Greater Bay Area. So... I am attending the gala. Um, you were highly requested by the organization of the president to be there, and now you're a member. I'm a member, and I bought a ticket. Um, so. I also wanted to recognize Member Afuamango for making sure that our website becomes more um, user-friendly, client-friendly in terms of the services. And um, just again, thank her for doing a beautiful um, highlight and overview of our annual report. And uh, she was too modest to want to take any kind of credit. And uh, so I had to put it in the president's letter as I was introducing the report. But also um, down the road, if you could keep uh, her informed so that she can actually kind of do her little model and graphics to make it easier for people to navigate. Yeah, Ms. Apamongo also sent us a link to the Los Angeles uh, Oversight Board's website uh, that I think it, I've had a great time just looking at it and seeing where we can pick up some good tips on putting our website together and uh, also uh, the manner in which they outreached uh, to the public, I think are very, very, uh, was very helpful. And do we have any more questions or comments? Um, Member Wayne, do you have any? Um, no, uh, thank you for the uh, presentation. Uh, it was very informative, and um, uh, look, look forward to having you on board and uh, working together. This All right, thank you. And I, and I will say this, that, you know, uh, I, I place a high importance on as big things come up, keeping you informed at, in real time and not, you know, reporting it just when we get here to the meeting because there are going to be some things that come up that you all need to be aware of. And so we want to create that mechanism to get, you know, get word to you in real time when there's something we think you should be aware of. Okay, thank you. And Member Brichter has joined us. Member yes. Brichter, do you have any questions or comments? Uh, no questions. Uh, apologies for, for being late. Um, sounds like you've been busy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is really, really good. So, so welcome. I think... Um, would absolutely love, and I know it's probably something that if we haven't discussed, we will discuss, just getting out there and having some community meetings as well, too, so that yes. you can FaceTime uh, with the different districts and the communities here in San Francisco so they also see uh, the IG. Um, but, yeah, outside of that, 
look forward yeah. to you continuing to come back and, and us having these discussions, but also enjoyed uh, you sharing, looking for ways in which we can also communicate in real time so that yeah. we're not having to be reactive yes. versus being proactive with how we can assist yes, uh, the IG's office as well. Too. If we see something that we need to get out in front of, we want to immediately let you know, like, look, we need to get out in front of this. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely uh, want to operate in that manner. Sounds good. And then, you know, our timeline, our priorities and benchmarks, that's a dynamic document. So yes. as you see a need, we can adjust our priorities as an oversight board. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. So, Dan, the next item. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, public comment. For members of the public who would like to make public comment on line item two, Inspector General report, please approach the podium when it is free. There's no public comment. Calling line item three, San Francisco Public Defender's Office presentation informational item. Angela Chan, Assistant Chief Attorney from the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, will present an overview of the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, the clients they serve, and their experiences with jail conditions and legal visits in the jails. Ms. Chan. Thank, thank you. And I think it's really appropriate that this month is happy. Um, Women's History Month, so our next two presenters, uh, very strong women leaders in our community. Um, and Angela's no stranger for her work in the community coming from the Asian Law Caucus and having been on the Police Commission and now with the Public Defender's Office. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. Um, and congrats on this board for existing and to the work that you do and also welcome to Inspector General Wiley. It was a pleasure to meet with you recently when you came to our office and met with several members of our staff. Um, I put a co some copies here of this PowerPoint in case you prefer hard copies. And can I ask, in terms of forwarding the slides, should I just ask you to go next? Okay, great. Um, so start again just saying hello i'm angela chan i'm an assistant chief attorney at the public defender's office i oversee our confront and advocate wing uh, we confront state-sponsored violence advocate for community empowerment i'll explain a little later more what that means the curious title uh, my friends sometimes tease me about um, and previously i was at the asian law caucus i was there for about 16 years managing the criminal justice reform program there uh, and also was on the police commission for four years, about a decade ago. And we used to meet in this room, so it's a very familiar room for me. Um, so I'm just gonna jump in. Next slide, thank you. Um, I'll be presenting on our office, uh, what we do, um, some of the programs that we're really proud of, the clients that we serve, um, as well go, as going into some of the issues that uh, we work with the sheriff's department on and some, highlight some of the challenges that we're trying to problem solve with the sheriff's office. Um, as you'll see here in this slide, our office is almost 100 years old, um, and really we have a constitutional mandate to represent, provide legal representation to clients who cannot afford a private attorney. Uh, private attorneys are very expensive, and so the vast majority of people can't afford that, and so we do represent over 70% of the people who are accused of crimes in this city. And the constitutional right that we're protecting is right to due process and a fair trial. Um, I also bring with me greetings from our public defender, Mano Raju. He's the only public defender that's elected in the whole state. Uh, only reason he couldn't be here is he's in trial, uh, but he was glad that I was able to join and appreciated the invitation to our office. 
Um, noting here too that we have 120 attorneys, 120 staff, so 240 staff total, and we represent about 20,000 people annually. Uh, I'll talk a little bit later about the caseloads that our attorneys carry. Next slide, please. So we always try to start every presentation, especially in the community, with our theory of change and our mission, what drives us. Mano often talks about this as the why we do the work, not just what we do. Um, so our core mission is to fiercely defend our clients. We, we want to make sure that they have an opportunity for a fair trial, they're pre presumed innocent, um, and that we turn over every stone to make sure that we investigate their case and present the, the, the most fair and accurate case possible for them. And we take the lessons that we learned from this client representation to develop our local and state policy priorities and also our community empowerment programs, which I'll talk about a little, a little bit later. And to give you an example of kind of how we do this, that's very applicable to this board, um, we actually uh, help to plant the seed for this board, uh, because back in 2015, uh, then public defender Jeff Adachi um, uh, found through our clients and their family members that there was an issue with, and a really concerning issue of sheriff deputies forcing people in custody to engage in gladiator fights for uh, betting and entertainment purposes. Um, obviously, gross misconduct, and that got a lot of attention in the community, in the press, and it led to the passage of the ballot measure that established this oversight board and also um, an inspector general position. Um, so it gives you a little sense of how we operate and the change that we try to make. Next slide, please. This is a uh, chart, an organizational chart, uh, and you'll see to the left here in yellow, uh, this is the bread and butter of our work, our felony and misdemeanor units that defend people who are accused of crime at 850 Bryant, the Hall of Justice, uh, which is right next to uh, CJ1 and CJ2, um, so two of our jails. Um, we also have our youth defender unit that represents young people. Some of you, I think, work on juvenile issues and, and are familiar with this area, and we have an office in Twin Peaks, Diamond Heights, where represent young people and really the focus there is about rehabilitation and also reunification with children and their families because we believe that's the safest and most supportive environment for them in most situations. Um, we also uh, have our Confront Advocate unit that I oversee uh, under this unit uh, is seven um, different groups, teams. Um, our integrity unit deals with uh, law enforcement misconduct. We keep a database that's open to the public called the COP Monitor Database. We try to identify and make transparent um, concerns about misconduct. Um, we have our small but mighty communications team that educates the public, especially when we have uh, an acquittal in a case to clear our clients' names. Uh, we also have a local and state policy director and are moving um, a package of policies at the state level where our criminal laws are made uh, in order to try to advance criminal justice reform. Uh, and we have our clean slate programs, which are out in the community holding monthly clinics in different neighborhoods throughout the city uh, to try to help people with um, removing barriers to jobs, housing, and employment, which happens when someone has a criminal record. And then our magic programs we'll talk about a little bit later. Our Freedom Project deals with post-conviction relief and helps to implement recent resentencing laws or called second look laws that have been passed by the legislature that allow people with long sentences in state prison to get a chance to appear in front of the Board of Parole hearing and show their record of rehabilitation to get a chance at release. Um, 
And then we, uh, in this third column here, we have our um, operations unit, which is very important in terms of all the data that we have to gather, the record keeping, the research that we do, the legal research in order to support our policy work and our client um, representation. Uh, and lastly, uh, our chief of staff um, handles uh, ensuring that we have we are our commitment to diversity and equity in our office. We are very proud of our diverse staff at all levels, including at the management level. Uh, and we are in budget season, so we're very much uh, in the process of advocating for our proposed budget. Next slide, please. Uh, a little snapshot of the clients that we serve. As you'll see here, about 10% of our clients are immigrants or limited English proficient community members. Um, most of our clients uh, suffer from mental uh, illness or uh, have a, are grappling with a substance use disorder issue. Um, the vast majority of our clients also are unhoused and all of them are low income. Um, and noting that on the right here in this pie chart, and this is something I think um, is particularly Egregious in San Francisco, but cuts across most counties in California, the overrepresentation of communities of color. Um, and so about 75% of our clients are people of color. And half of our clients are black, even though the black population makes up about 6% of San Francisco. So there's a lot of work to do in San Francisco in terms of racial justice and criminal justice reform. Next slide, please. <coughs> Um, we're proud that uh, as a public defender office, our trial rates are probably some of the highest in the country, meaning that we're not afraid to go to trial uh, and we are proud of the skills of our trial attorneys. Um, and we have a, a great success rate to show for that. About 40% of the cases that we take to trial, we are able to get an acquittal. Um, or uh, a hung jury, um, so uh, avoiding a conviction. Um, and uh, noting that about 97% of the people who are detained in our jails are actually pre-trial awaiting the resolution of their case. So just kind of giving that context also. I thought it was 80, I was looking at the most recent numbers and I didn't realize it's 97%, so a high, high number of people detained in the jail pre-trial. Uh, we also have a high success rate in terms of dismissals, so uh, seeking a dismissal of a case under California Penal Code 995 because of procedural errors, lack of probable cause, and other legal issues that affect the integrity of the case. And lastly, it's not we're we're not just proud of our trial rates and our success rates, we're also proud that we provide holistic representation to our clients. Um, it's not just about processing them through the criminal system, it's about making sure that we get, get connected um, to the services that they need, whether it be mental health, substance use, housing, et cetera. Um, and so that's something really uh, is why we have not just attorneys, but social workers that are critical to the work that we do. Next slide, please. Um, to give you a sense of some of our cases and, and our clients, uh, to kind of match a face to what I'm describing here, um, here are some of the headlines, uh, some recent headlines over the last two years or so of uh, acquittals uh, and other successful outcomes that we, we've been able to get for our clients. Um, this includes uh, this picture of Mr. Everett here, who's standing in the middle in between two of our um, amazing trial attorneys. Um, he's 54 years old, he was shot 
five times by SFPD when he was in mental health crisis. He was charged with resisting arrest, threatening an officer, and carrying a knife. Um, and uh, luckily, uh, we were able to get the case dismissed before having to go to trial. Um, and noting the headlines here, the theme uh, are uh, people who are unhoused being involved in the criminal system and um, how that is actually um, a, a kind of important fact to pair with that is that unhoused people are more likely to be victims of crime than they are to perpetrate crime, but they are much more likely to be criminalized and to be incarcerated. Next slide, please. Uh, this will highlight some of our community programs, including our magic programs that I spoke about earlier. Uh, so we not only defend our clients in the courtroom, uh, we also try to make sure that we look at community empowerment. We want to prevent folks from getting into the system in the first place. Uh, we want to really put ourselves out of a job is, is kind of our, our goal here at the Public Defender's Office. And so about 20 years ago, uh, we started our magic programs that are programs based in the Bayview and the Western Edition slash Fillmore area, two strong um, black communities in order to uh, uh, provide services such as our summer literacy program, our uh, fall backpack giveaway program. Uh, we just had our black and white ball, which is a really fun event for children to dress up and, and celebrate with our families. Um, and we also hold regular convener meetings with community partners where it's a space for people to share information and build community. You all are absolutely welcome to join those magic convener meetings, which are posted on the magic website and on their social media. Next slide, please. Um, I'd skip through, but I'll just kind of quickly say that uh, we also have a program called the Legal Education Advocacy Program, or LEAP, uh, where we advocate for young people in terms of their educational programs in SFUSD schools. Um, and when I was uh, at the Asian Law Caucus, I actually was also involved in the effort to make sure that young people have the appropriate educational plan uh, so they're less likely to get into trouble in school. Um, and on this side, I want to highlight our End the Cycle program. This is relatively new. Uh, we do have a limited number of social workers, so that the social workers we do have, we've had them focus on more serious felony cases to really try to get to the root of, of the needs in those cases. Um, we, in the last two years or so, started the End the Cycle program to connect our, so to get a few more social workers, we have three, to work with people who are arrested for misdemeanors when they first enter the system, because when someone enters the system, that's a chance to intervene and to prevent a cycle of being reincarcerated over and over again. Um, sometimes that's even generational. We want to disrupt that cycle. Um, and it's really our social workers connecting people with the services that they need. Uh, I mentioned our Clean Slate program already, uh, and then our College Pathway Project. We started this last year, and these are formal uh, partnerships with SF State and City College to connect our clients, those who are in the jail and those who are released, um, with higher education opportunities. It could start with just a few classes, or it could be full-time enrollment. And uh, it's been wonderful to work with SF State and City College on that project. Next slide, please. So I mentioned our workloads earlier. Um, there's been a couple factors that have led to a pretty dramatic increase in our workloads. Um, our felony attorneys can carry around 70 cases for one attorney. Our misdemeanor attorneys can carry around 130 cases. That's an immense amount of cases. And that's even coming from a nonprofit where there was already a high caseload. This is even higher than that, so it, it is quite a bit of work. Um, and, and laying out some of the causes here, I'm sure you have probably additional causes you might want to throw in, um, but includes what I'll talk about later, the trial delays, uh, 
Um, there has been an increase in filings by the district attorney's office. There has been a dramatic decrease in referrals to diversion programs and a complete shutdown of the adult restorative justice program and a significant reduction in the youth um, restorative justice program. Uh, so we are been trying to work with the district attorney's office to bring that back, but we are concerned about that. Um, there's also been changes in laws um, that have resulted in also more work and more opportunities, including the Racial Justice Act. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but it's a relatively new law um, and where there is um, evidence of racial bias that um, has harmed or, or um, impacted a case. Um, that's an opportunity to challenge a conviction, um, challenge a charge, um, challenge a sentence through bringing a Racial Justice Act motion. So that's additional work that our office has really tried to specialize in, but we certainly uh, could use more resources for that. And noting too that the jail population has increased from a low of around the 800s to in 2020 during the height of the pandemic to about 1,100 people now. And so those numbers do mean that we have higher caseloads and, and more work in our office. Um, next slide. And you might have seen this in the headlines. Uh, there has been a backlog of cases uh, where people uh, have asserted their speedy trial rights, uh, 60 days to hold a trial if you have a felony charge, 30 days if you have a misdemeanor charge, and the trials not being held within that mandated time frame, mandated by state law and also um, constitutional protections. And as a result of this backlog that started with COVID but really continued well beyond that emergency, um, we got to a height of over 1,100 cases that were backlogged, where people's speedy trial rights were violated. Um, and at that height, about 150 people in the jail were there waiting their cases past their speedy trial deadline. And uh, some of the concerns that we um, highlighted is that uh, close to City Hall is our Civic Center Courthouse, which is a second courthouse that we could use in addition to our Hall of Justice to hold trials. And unfortunately, only about one or two courtrooms at that nearby courthouse was open for trials, for criminal trials. The rest were used for civil matters, which are less time sensitive. Um, and there was a concern, it was, there's a bit of finger pointing at the say between the sheriff's office and the courts as to how do we problem solve, what's the issue here? Um, and the courts had pointed their fingers to the sheriff's office so they need more sheriff staffing to hold the hearings at Civic Center. Our office said, you know, we, we don't care what the issue is, we just need these trials to be held because we have clients who are waiting with their rights violated. So we were just pushing, pushing, pushing everyone involved. Um, and that includes filing a lawsuit that's pending that's against the courts in order to try to reduce the backlogs and get them to come up with a comprehensive plan to address it. Uh, we also held back-to-back -back summer sit-ins, eight weeks back-to-back -back at the Hall of Justice last summer to educate the public about this and also to put pressure on everyone around uh, to get going on addressing the backlog. Um, the good news is from all that work, there's been a significant reduction in the backlog with felony cases. So that's been a relief and there's been trial after trial now happening at the Hall of Justice on the felony end. But on the misdemeanor end, we continue to see a very significant backlog, um, both for people who are um, out of custody and in custody. And so that there continues to be a push on that. And 
2024, we're four years um, you know, past the height of the pandemic and we're still dealing with this issue. And it is pretty unique to San Francisco. Um, of the 58 counties at San Francisco, that probably has the worst backlog um, alongside Santa Clara County. But other counties um, have been able to address their backlog. And, and some didn't even really have much of a backlog. Um, next slide, please. Um, noting our, our, the funding for our office here, uh, we have about $51 million in our budget. Um, the district attorney, by contrast, has $81 million. Our budget's about six times less than the sheriff's department, 13 times less than the police department. Um, and we do represent about 20,000 people a year, over 70% of the people who are uh, in our criminal system in San Francisco. Next slide, please. Um, the war on drugs. And so over the last few years, there has, in, in my opinion, been a revived war on drugs in San Francisco, where there's been a focus on law enforcement approaches versus public health approaches. Um, and as a part of this revived war on drugs, the Sheriff's Department has deployed 130 deputies, not all at the same time, but they've, they've designated 130 deputies to be deployed to the Tenderloin to engage in drug arrests. Uh, and this is a small neighborhood that's already has been saturated by law enforcement, including SFPD, California Highway Patrol, California National Guard, and uh, federal uh, drug enforcement agencies. So there, there's a lot going on in there. And something I often comment on from a policy perspective is it would be wonderful to see the tenderloin saturated with nurses, doctors, social workers also, um, so that people who uh, need help can get it. Um, back in October 2022, we held a press briefing um, with doctors, uh, with treatment providers, to really lay out evidence-based public health strategies that are more effective at addressing substance use disorder than arrests and incarceration. Um, I included on this slide a, a, a QR code so you can view the YouTube um, recorded presentation in case you're interested and get to know some of the experts that we brought to have this discussion. Um, we're concerned, and I think the numbers bear it out, that uh, a decent chunk of the increase of people in our jails is because of this revived uh, war on drugs. And in particular, um, we've seen that uh, with CJ1, which is the intake part of the jail, um, that we have people there who are going uh, through there for public intoxication, for substance use disorder, and they're being flash incarcerated, so there for a few hours, a day, and then released. And uh, we have reports from our clients where they are going through ex really excruciating withdrawal and not receiving the medical support and attention that they need. So it really just feels like, to, for our clients, um, not, a, not a helpful situation, not something that will get them off of substances, but really something that's just putting them through a really painful um, time. Um, and what we would, would really like to ensure is that people instead get access to low barrier, um, uh, easy to receive and, and accept services uh, rather than this flash incarceration that's been going on now for uh, a year to two years. Next slide, please. This is where I'll spend a little bit of time just giving our observations regarding the jail conditions um, and uh, you know, our partnership with the, with the sheriff's office to try to address and, and problem solve some of these issues. Um, so first, legal visits. Um, these are when our staff, our attorneys, social workers, paralegals, uh, investigators go and meet with our clients. These legal visits in the jail are 
critical. And they're also not optional. They're required, it's required that we get access to our clients through the Constitution, through statutory protections, because it's a, it's a part of that right to uh, a fair trial and to due process. If we can't meet with our clients, we can't prepare them for their next hearing and prepare with them for trial, which means that people are less likely to get released and that contributes to increasing numbers in our jails. So it's a top priority for our office for those reasons. Uh, we engage in legal visits in three main ways, Zoom visits, in person, and also via phone. Um, we meet bi-weekly with prisoner legal services to problem solve issues with legal visits and also try to alert them in real time when we encounter them. Um, they've been incredibly helpful. I think Nick pre presented to you uh, pretty recently and I just wanna say that Nick and his colleagues, Melinda and Asia, have been awesome, really ready to do work, uh, working well outside work hours um, to try to problem solve issues. Um, in terms of Zoom legal visits, some things that we've seen that's a reoccurring issue that we've been, we've been trying to problem solve and have been also asking for support from the sheriff's IT department um, is um, uh, bad sound quality. Sometimes the sound quality is, is on one end, sometimes it's on the other, sometimes it's on both. And when the quality is so bad that you can't hear one another, you can't conduct a proper legal visit, so those visits have to end. Um, and sometimes get rescheduled, that delays hearings. Um, we've also had issues, and this past week there's been, um, it's happened three times already, or three days out of two weeks, um, where we've had uh, a row of visits canceled, Zoom visits canceled, um, and with no notice about why. And we're still following up and trying to figure out why those visits have been canceled, and that's been very disruptive. Um, we all have also had issues, and it hasn't happened in the last month or so, but definitely uh, last year and the year before this has happened, where uh, some deputies would place uh, the tablet that was used for a Zoom call outside the individual cell, so there's no attorney-client privilege. Can't conduct the, the call when that happens. Um, and so that really ends up uh, the Zoom call being canceled and having to be rescheduled. Uh, we've been problem shooting some of that, but uh, more work needs to be done to make sure it's consistent across the board that people are brought to uh, the uh, relevant visiting rooms to have a proper confidential visit. Uh, In-person legal visits, um, this is critical also to our work. Uh, nothing can kind of replace being in person and, and making that effort to see your client. And as you know, our third jail, CJ3, is down in San Bruno. Bit of a drive, <laughs> so when our staff make the trek there, if they aren't able to get a legal visit, it really throws off their whole day. It can take a few hours to do this. Um, and we've had some issues uh, with not being able to get in a legal visit because of lockdowns and short staffing. Um, noting that neither are appropriate reasons to not allow a legal visit um, because legal visits are constitutional and statutory rights. So we've been trying to wade through that by asking for the watch commander, um, asking for the supervisor on staff. Sometimes we can problem solve it. Other times it's kind of a waste of uh, you know, a few hours and delaying of hearings because we aren't able to. So that's work in progress. Recently, we also had a, a deputy at CJ3 in San Bruno walk into a legal visit and told our staff to cut short a visit because of short staffing. Um, also, not something that's legally allowed, and so we are concerned about that and have flagged that for the sheriff's office. Um, we've seen also a pattern of the use of count time, which happens several times a day in each of the jails, um, where uh, a count creep, uh, the count time seems to be going 
earlier and ending later, and that being used to, in some situations, not allow a legal visit. And so uh, we've been also asking for a watch commander, trying to uh, go higher up when we encounter a count creep issue, where we're denied a visit uh, outside of the appropriate count hours. Um, so those are just a smattering of our, our legal visit issues. Happy to answer questions about that. Um, another issue that we've been encountering, and there was a recent news story about this, um, actually coming from the district attorney's office, um, is the sheriff's office's duty to transport clients to and from court. Over the past several years, in the time I've been in our office, uh, we've seen numerous times where uh, a deputy reported that a, a client refused to attend court, and that's why they weren't brought to court. And in those, some of those situations, our clients have said, no, I, I didn't refuse, I wanted to go to court. And we're concerned that in some of those situations, it's not really a refusal, it's misunderstanding, miscommunication, sometimes our client uh, flunking the attitude test and then being denied um, uh, a transportation to court. That, of course, delays court, delays criminal proceedings, and can contribute to um, increasing numbers in our jails. And so we've been working with the sheriff's office to try to identify, are there certain deputies where this is more likely to happen? Can we retrain? Can we problem solve here? And so that's also work in progress. Um, client contact with family members. So it is very important to us that our, we, we don't just represent our clients. We want to make sure that we meet the needs of their families and communities impacted. Um, and so uh, sometimes family members have reported to us concerns about um, not being able to get a client visit. And during the pandemic, family visits were shut down. It was very slow for them to come back. Up until recently, there were only about two visits opportunities for visits per each jail a month. I understand that that's been increasing, which we really appreciate. Um, however, we want to keep pushing and say we want more access for our families to visit. Um, you know, for those who are parents to, to be away from your child for any amount of time is um, excruciating and heartbreaking. So to the extent we can really um, encourage and support that access, I, our office um, would really encourage that. Um, also programming. I think I'm sure this is something you've recently talked about. Um, programming was shut down during COVID. We are four years uh, out from that, and program is slowly coming back, but not fast enough, especially program in different languages to make sure we provide programming for all of our communities who are in our jails. Um, and another thing to highlight that has been in the news um, and has been uh, discussed is um, concern about lack of sunlight and outdoor time. Uh, I did a tour of the jail uh, last spring, and thanks to the sheriff's office for hosting us and uh, public defender Mano Raju for those very helpful visits. Um, I did notice, though, that there was a lack of sunlight, lack of access to fresh air. Uh, and, uh, and our office is concerned about the impact in terms of mental health and long-term illnesses that people experience from lack of those very basic things that could lead to heart disease, depression, um, uh, high blood pressure. And we've had clients that due to the trial delays have also been detained even longer in those conditions and, um, and their families have expressed concern about that, um, about family members coming home with those types of conditions. We understand that in October 2023, um, the judge in this 
lawsuit that was filed by an outside party um, ordered the sheriff's department to provide at least 15 minutes of sunlight every day to people who've been detained in jails for one year or more. Um, I understand there's some issues and discussion about compliance and the judge is doing a tour sooner the jail. Uh, we do hope that th these issues of just basic access to sunlight and fresh air will be addressed for our clients. And just a, a last note here in terms of laying out some of the challenges that we're seeing. Um, a concern about in-custody deaths. Um, we have had at least two clients die um, in custody in the last two years, um, allegedly by suicide, I believe, in both those cases. And uh, we are concerned um, that these clients had mental health needs that were not being addressed in the jail and do ask for a thorough investigation of those deaths, um, both behalf, on behalf of our office and also the family members who've reached out to us and have expressed you know, deep concern. Um, and that kind of goes through some of the, some of the issues I wanted to lay out. Um, this is my contact information. You all are welcome to contact me. I try to be as accessible as possible. Uh, I think I know at least a half, a half of you on this um, commission and really appreciate all of your service to San Francisco. Thank you, Angela. Do we have any questions or comments? I'll start with Member Afamango. Yes, thank you so much for your presentation and for walking us through the context and I can see how um, kind of like the values come to life through the work that you guys do. Um, just if maybe some two questions on the slides that you presented, I think the in the court slide, you mentioned 90% pre-trial clients are waiting. Um, do you know what the breakout is? Is it like, and I'm you know not a legal person, I don't really understand the language, but like is it like misdemeanor offenses or is it like felony offenses? For like that is a great question. I have the most recent stats courtesy of the sheriff's office, and it does not break it down. Okay. Um, so if anyone in the sheriff's office would like to comment, you're welcome to. I, I don't have that number. I just know that the vast majority of people who are waiting pretrial, um, uh, that's the high percentage. And I, if I were to hazard a guess, I would guess that a lot of those individuals uh, are um, facing felony charges okay. in that situation. Okay. And then also thanks for explaining the whole the bottleneck situation with the trial delays. I can see that from, from the graph that you had, it like spiked, especially during the pandemic. So I think it's also very interesting what you noted that other um, counties aren't experiencing the same issues aside from Santa Clara. Do you know what that is? Like, are they are they like what the reason is for the Santa Clara? Yeah, other, um, so outside of San Francisco and Santa Clara, um, other counties continue to hold trials during the height of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. They found, for example, San Mateo County opened their um, convention center and held trials. And so they were able to actually not accumulate a backlog because of that. San Francisco did not take those actions, was not proactive, was not was not planning, um, and as a result, we're in a situation where four years later, we used, we still have a very significant misdemeanor backlog and are just making some progress on the felony backlog, so we are concerned. I understand that Santa Clara had a similar uh, missteps in how they handled it, um, but I, I would hazard a guess at this point, San Francisco might have worse numbers in terms of our backlog. Okay. Well, it's good because you have the inspector general here, you have the board, and you also have the sheriff's department um, to listen on this. Okay, on the last slide, the jail conditions. Are these listed on priority order? 
as far as like oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely don't think they're in priority. Uh, I, I, because of course, in custody deaths is something that we take extremely seriously. And um, when we have to speak with those family members um, who have a lot of questions about why their family member died in custody, it, it is extremely difficult. So I, this is not in any particular order. Okay. Um, I did want to highlight legal visits because I have the most information about that um, since I, I've been dealing with that on a really granular level. Um, so that's why I started there. Um, all right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for those questions. Member Duane. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any questions. Thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Member Brookter. Yeah, thank you so much for that, uh, Assistant Chief Chan. That was very, very thorough. <laughs> oh, good. Um, <laughs> Glad to hear that. And, you know, I got an opportunity and just want to give a big shout out to Public Defender Mano Raju. Uh, who spends a lot of time in community. I think the last time I saw him, he was in District 10 and we were going through the District 10 safety plan. And I got to see some of these numbers on a, on a much smaller level than what you just presented uh, today. Um, but I think, you know, really what I wanted to highlight was just, again, just being able to look at the numbers. And I, both of us have been on the police commission and just allowing folks to really connect the dots when we look at racial injustice and how it, you know, starts off with the police department and how it continues to go uh, even with the sheriff's department. So I think I just wanted to make sure that we really highlighted that. And again, I think we're also hearing some consistent themes uh, that we just heard last month at our meeting uh, when our members from the reentry uh, community came out and talked about lack of services, being able to get time with their loved ones uh, who are in jail. So uh, as, as we continue to hear these themes, I hope we continue to you know have that dialogue. Now that we have the IG here, um, we can begin to move the needle forward uh, with information that's consistently coming, not just from community, but also from other agencies. So uh, look forward to you, you all continuing to come and provide us with information and things that we can do in order to push some of these things forward. Thank you for that really helpful comment, Commissioner. Um, I see the work that this Sheriff Oversight Board is is uh, charged with doing, and this our new Inspector General is racial justice work because of the great gross racial disparities that we have in the city at every level at access to services, at education, um, at employment, that also, and also uh, with um, arrest rates, incarceration rates, release rates, pretrial. Um, convictions and sentences. It's every step of the way there is racial disparity. And um, it is shocking when you go into our jails and you see that it's significantly majority minority, both at, in juvenile hall where I used to spend a lot of time working um, and in our adult uh, facilities, it tells you there's something seriously wrong and we have a lot of work to do in this city. Vice President. Great, thank you so much, Assistant Chief. And it's really great to have someone with your experience and um, involvement directly in community. I think that it's wonderful that you, you know, Rajupa picked somebody like <laughs> thank you, you to be in this position. Um, so I had a couple questions. Um, what is, do you have a formal procedure or protocol for public defenders to address concerns with the sheriff? Or you have 120 attorneys and they do, do they go through a manager or a process? Um, because one of the things we wanna do is we wanna get your clients the immediate help if they need, right? So if there is an error or there is a mistake, we wanna be able to know that there's a process by which it's being communi communicated and addressed promptly, right? And consistently, 
um, between all your public defenders. 120 is a lot of different opinions and different approaches and styles. Um, so do you have a, a policy and procedure for what uh, public defenders need to do to assist them in getting resources or addressing any concerns with the sheriff? That's a great question, and I am... Uh I am a very organized systems kind of person, so I, I always ask the same questions. It's like, let's make sure we um, streamline this. Let's make sure we're also thorough in capturing our concerns um, and, and as timely as possible. So uh, with me joining the office about two years ago, um, it's myself and Hadi Razak, another assistant chief. He actually oversees our operations, um, and the two of us meet uh, every two weeks with the sheriff's office. We've been meeting with prisoner legal services last year or so. Prior to that, we met with Chief Deputy uh, Fisher Paulson, and we also do have a line to Chief Deputy Lizette Adams um, to convey any concerns that come up. Uh, our attorneys, all of our staff know uh, to uh, raise those concerns with us immediately when they have them so that we can organize and prioritize our concerns and make sure we relay it. Some situations, we do run it all the way up to Sheriff Miyamoto and say, this is something that's really urgent. We need your help. And he has been responsive in returning our calls and trying to address issues. So would it be accurate to say that if a public defender is independently moving outside of that kind of managerial um, support structure that you have, then they're not really following the rules to be able to get the assistance from the sheriffs? Yes, we, 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 we send regular updates to our staff, um, debriefing them on our conversations with problem solving with the sheriff's office so they're aware, here's what we're trying to do, here's much more work in progress, and so our, our staff should be well aware. There are some situations where they might have more facts and details than we do, and so we'll say, go ahead and email the sheriff's office, but CC us so that we're aware of what's happening and we can track everything. So we try our best to have an organized ship. Great. And I think that's really important because, you know, um, as many of the issues that I think you've raised um, really highlight the understaffing and, and the issues with not having sufficient deputies, you know, in, in terms of not having deputies being able to, oh, thank you so much, being able to be in the civic courthouse. When I was a misdemeanor um, prosecutor, I had several um, uh, trials in the courthouse. Um, and, you know, uh, as well as there's been issues also from transportation of not having enough staff. And you're also indicating to us about in-person visits and not having enough staff. Um, so I think that, that that's something I, I hope that the community and everyone here on this board really, you know, hears of, of just how it's impacting your clients to not have sufficient deputies to be able to perform their essential um, functions. You also mentioned about, um, I think, um, Commissioner Afamanga asked a question regarding the data of what was the felonies and misdemeanors for the 90%. Um, you indicated that you had the data from the sheriff's office, but do you not keep your own data? Um, in term, we do keep some of our own data, yes. uh, but in terms of the data of real time, what's happening in our jails, that information comes to the sheriff's office, and so, and it's through a partnership called the um, Safety and Justice Challenge yeah. from the MacArthur Foundation that that we do have the various criminal justice stakeholders at the table meeting regularly to try to share information because different um, agencies in the system have different data, right? Have yes, different information, um, and so we, we try our best to collaborate and share what information we are allowed to share. Okay, great, because I think that if, you know, we have community members that want that kind of data, that might be something that you address through this already system 
that you've already established to obtain data, right? Because community members obviously want to find out what's the difference between people being in jail who are in misdemeanors and felonies, and especially for serious violent felonies. Um, we've seen a lot of different articles, and especially now in an election year, this issue is coming up in so many different ways about who are the people that are in jail versus who are the people that are um, being um, let out of jail and their reasons for that. Um, so, What are the things that you think this board should be immediate? What would you say are the priorities? And I understand that, you know, I'm putting you on the spot, right? You haven't had a chance to talk to your uh, boss. But what, what would you say as a practitioner, as someone that has come in to kind of overview, relook at the system, what are the things that you think that the um, PD's office can do to have uh, the best conversation with the sheriff and vice versa? And what conversations do you want us to focus on first? Like, what are your priorities? I, I hear you with the death, um, custody deaths, right? Um, I hear the speedy trial issues that go into the in-person, the preparation, the transportation, the visits and whatnot. So it would be helpful to you because our goal is to make sure that the sheriff is able to do the work that they need to do and that you are able to do the work that you need to do in providing your essential services that you do for community. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know, I, need, I would need to look back at your, <laughs> your um, charter and your, your powers to see if this is within it. Um, but one thing, you'd mentioned short staffing. I think that's an issue across many departments. Our office certainly, as you can tell from our presentation, feel very, very short staffed. Um, and I think when you are short staffed and you're in this budget situation in the city where people are being asked, agencies are being asked to cut their budget um, and not expand, um, is to look at where are we spending our limited staffing right now? Where are we putting people right now? And our office would posit that um, we should prioritize staffing from when there are constitutional or statutory mandated duties, and that includes facilitating legal visits mm -hmm. and transportation um, to court. And that's why I've highlighted those um, for our office, and that's what we would strongly encourage the sheriff's office to do. Um, you know, you're getting pulled in a million different directions every day, uh, and uh, and also being asked to take on new work. And I, I would say. Get your core duties done first um, before you go beyond that. I just wanted to add this because um, I think it's important to note here because what I'm hearing is not under agreed and understand that understaffing, sheriff understaffing is a problem for everyone. Totally hear that. But what I'm gathering from her presentation is even from like Zoom meetings, which I, I don't, I mean, unless someone can walk me through how that is is extra work for the sheriff's department. I need to understand like why that would be an issue to set up those Zoom meetings and things that would kind of help bring um, move things along. We've, we've had the same question. We've been trying to figure that out because um, it has been really helpful to have, be able to have multiple ways of visiting our clients, including Zoom visits. It's very useful. We want to keep that going, but we, we have been trying to sort out why it's, it's pretty challenging. It's, it's not that smooth. So um, I actually have one more question. Okay. Um, and then I, it's more of a comment because I had to say, I think, you know, and from my uh, professional and past experience, 
I believe the San Francisco courts were already backlogged mm. before COVID. So we were already dealing with a really um, dire situation in the courtrooms, both civilly, but especially in criminal courts. And I distinctly remember giving offers of diversion and all of those different progress and then being like, no, we're going to trial. And I was just like, but your client. Um, so I think it's, I think, really important, especially when it comes to misdemeanors, is also for deputies to really, you know, public defenders to accept clients that are offers that are fair and reasonable also. Um, and I think, you know, that that is something that, you know, I, I felt like there was moments when I went to work and I was like, oh, justice was not served today, you know. And as someone who cares passionately about justice, because I I genuinely believe, I am of the mindset, and this is my own personal belief, that victims without justice are future defendants. I have reviewed numerous mitigation packages of defendants, and the stories that you hear are heart-wrenching. And especially in juvenile, right? When you do that work and you're like, no child should ever have to ex have experienced this, right? Um, so I'm hoping that in our position as the board commission, we can be a support to you in making sure that you're getting the communication that you need and the prompt responses that you need in addressing these issues so we can cut through a lot of sometimes the divide between both offices and the law enforcement to really get like if your client needs medical attention, let's get let's zero in on that and be as responsive. And that's one of my goals is to ensure that the sheriff's office is as responsive as, pos as soon as possible. And if there is, is issues with being responsive or with the approach, is that that's the things we wanna know because our charter does require us to look at the policies and procedures, right? And the sheriff has just had an overhaul of their entire policies and procedures, which I am hoping are, are are gonna be improvements, right? And we're gonna see hopefully those improvements. So you are the ones on the ground dealing with those policies and procedures. So we do wanna make sure that there's an open line of communication so that we can address that. Um, and um, your comments definitely do not fall on deaf ears and we're very happy that you're here at the table presenting it to us. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that very much and I'm glad to come back. I'm glad to bring other members of our staff to provide regular updates and also have an open line of communication and regular meetings with Inspector General Wiley. We're happy to do that and we are, you know, this board is, is came out of some of our work so we yes. really want to support you all in being as effective as possible so we appreciate so your service. I wanted service. to get my two cents in here and I am time sensitive and we are going to work on charter amendments today as we speak. Um, so I also, um, and you, you've known me for a long time, so I am very much about community in a multi-pronged approach. Worked with Patty Lee on human trafficking issues. Um, so one of the very effective approaches we've had is a multi-pronged approach with all the stakeholders at the table. So on the Commission on the Status of Women, we had the Family Justice Council, uh, uh, Family Violence Council. So that actually stemmed domestic violence homicides to zero. Uh, for a period of almost four years. So that meant we had public defender representative, um, DA, victim services, um, adult probation, and uh, the courts all present at the table. We met, you know, once a week, I mean, I'm sorry, once a month. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes the small things, addressing things um, in a very methodical way 
actually stems bigger problems. And so when people think, and I don't love meetings, so I like to be really efficient. And so um, people who know me, uh, templates, I love templates. So if there is a particular issue um, that can be addressed, a particular person, so people don't have to fish. I mean, it's so difficult for the public. I work as a public sector attorney, and so I'm very conscientious when someone reaches me in person, I know how many channels they had to go through where they didn't get an answer, they get, didn't get their problem resolved. So I'm hoping that we can streamline and make sure, I mean, it's great that we have um, Terry Wiley as our Inspector General because he is very hands-on um, getting the problem solved. And so I'm hoping that, you know, when you can bring issues to us, and um, we are, you know, we're very fortunate that our, our sheriff welcomes oversight and welcomes issues brought to his attention. And I always tell people, you know, the public, we rely on you too because we can't be eyes and ears all over. So we expect people to bring problems to us so that we can resolve them. I wanted to go sort of specifically into the pretrial detention. Um, so the, the greater numbers are actually really, I think, from the tenderloin area with that multi-task force. Um, and that also puts a strain on our... Um, deputies because we haven't grown our staff, but the incarceration rate is 50%, the, the, the population is 50% higher. So that puts an extra strain. Um, the maximum hours that a deputy can work is 16 hours. So imagine that you can't plan your life because deputy win, um, you're in your locker room and someone says, sorry, we gotta call you back to duty. So you can't even plan it, like there's no quality of life even for our deputies. And when other jurisdictions can maybe offer more money, the housing costs are lower, we are actually continuing to lose staff, and not only to retirement, but you know, really younger deputies who want to have families and a more stable life. So you know, we're all, we, we do the balance, and when I look at the entire justice system, I'm looking at the families, the individuals affected by the criminal justice system, but also the quality of life for those working um, with our sheriff's office. So. Um, I, I hope that everybody kind of brings in that perspective because it's all a whole continuum and a, a balance. So I also want to ask you about the impact of the elimination essentially of the bail system in San Francisco, if that's had an impact too in the increased um, incarcerated population. That's a great question. Um, I don't think that that's been the most significant driver. It's been a big change um, for our office um, and our clients, but I, I feel like that that's not the main thing that comes up when we're talking about why there's been an increase in jail numbers. It's, it's really this um, increase in law enforcement in the tenderloin. It's been the reduction in diversion. And going back to your comments, Commissioner, um, I am a uh, very committed to restorative justice, and that's been some of my work at this office is try to revive that program because it has been shut down. Um, and so finding basically more ways to allow people to um, leave the jail in a safe way with services is been a big priority. That will help reduce jail numbers and reduce the workload on the sheriff's staff and on, and on our office. And that's why, that's part of why I elevated the issue of legal visits and transportation to court, because when those things don't happen, um, you, you can't, can, your, your court case is on pause, and that can prolong someone's detention. So I'm looking at both sides. So victims want their cases to go forward, too. Exactly. And um, so... I've heard from victims too is, you know, oh, you know, my case was continued because uh, the defendant refused to get on the bus for transportation. So, um, 
And while there's a right to speedy trial, I don't know if, <clears throat> sort of a judge's order, I don't think we can compel can someone compel. In, in custody to get on that bus and get into the courtroom. That's so a great what, point. So it, what are the yeah. solutions, or do you think that we... That's what I want to untangle, because what, we want our clients to go to court. <laughs> we have every incentive to encourage them to go to court. Um, and, and in many of these situations, uh, our clients have said, I wanted to go to court that day, but the sheriff did not transport me. And so we have lifted up those cases just to investigate and see what happened here, because it's, it's about preventing it from happening again. Okay. Can, we can we problem solve and also kind of target, is, is there a reoccurring pattern with certain individuals? So we're in the midst of figuring that out. And my understanding is there is a log that's kept when there's a refusal, um, and we're asking to go back through that log and, and do, do a spot check, see what's happening here. I think it would be... That's right. We're, we want to untangle that. We want to understand what happened there it, on whose end it was. But our office, we're clear. We want our clients to go to court. And so we're trying to figure out the log jam. Due to the short staffing, um, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes to arrange that legal visit due to the uh, safety and security concerns, correct? That's right, and so that is why it is about priorities. You know, you, you have a certain number of staff, it's never enough, and so where do you, um, where do you have your staff focus on? What do you prioritize, have them prioritize? And so for us, you know, what we're asking is to prioritize those legal visits, because it does help with reducing the number of people in our jails, um, so it allows them to be able to process their criminal case. Also, I think um, another priority could be staffing, like focus on staffing the sheriff's department and getting resources and support for the sheriff's office to get more staffing to, you know, arrange those legal visits. Well, we have our hands full with uh, our 50 million budget. That's <laughs> one sixth of the sheriff's office. So, and our, our massive caseload. So, at the same for us to be transparent, that's our priority. We we need to address that. Um, and but we hear you about, and we are well aware. We've heard from the sheriff's office about short staffing. So I had a few other things to just um, raise um, in terms of the drug withdrawal. So um, I don't know if you tuned into last month at all, but when we had our community partners here and we had Cedric Akbar, um, we, we do have people who have been through the criminal justice system who have had substance abuse <clears throat> issues and are now um, counselors. I think you know, these lived experiences um, make them much more credible in terms of how to turn people's lives around. So um, I hear from some of people like, like Cedric who say, you know, the people who are supposedly running the organizations are not following what would be successful. And so how do you, how would we approach listening to people who have actually successfully lived through the experiences who are now counselors to have people who are higher up actually listen and try to get people successfully into reentry. I mean, that is our whole reason for being here today, to make sure people have the resources while they're incarcerated to become successful in reentry and then the supportive services upon reentry so there's um, a lower recidivism rate. Absolutely, great question. Um, and I have that war on drugs press briefing that I linked to here in case it's helpful to kind of dive deeper. Um, we do have a number of experts um, who spent decades in this area um, speaking at that press briefing to explain the approaches. But what I learned from that press briefing is that 
it's not an either or in terms of the types of programs. Um, there are, I, I believe um, Cedric might be one of these individuals, I'm, I'm not sure, um, that are advocating for abstinence-based programs, which have their place, an abstinence-based program. And for some people, that works really well, and that's actually what they need. For other people, it might be something on the kind of a, a different part of the continuum or the range where it's harm reduction. It's reducing substance use, doing it in a safer way um, with um, ways of addressing overdoses. Um, it might be in that, it, they might be at that, in that part of their life. Um, and so I, we in our office, we advocate for the full range. We want services to be culturally competent, language accessible, and um, whether it be abstinence or something along the continuum of harm reduction, we support all of that. We just want to make sure people get the services they need when they're ready to receive it. And we also find that when it's a voluntary um, situation, people are more likely to participate and to participate long term. So we want to also get people in a place where they can voluntarily receive the services too. And I think Sheriff Miyamoto has been very much sort of the carrot person um, in terms of you know, extra visits from family with pre-COVID. Um, and this in particular, I know on the, uh, for the domestic violence, um, those who are incarcerated for domestic violence having to go through the, the annual or that year-long treatment and classes. So um, I believe in offering the services and having some enticements to make sure people are successful. So going back though, um, one thing very near and dear to my heart, and because it's in my neighborhood, is the Youth Guidance Center. And I wish that, and I'm going to just say it out to our leaders, before you do something, I'd like people to have a vision rather than to be reactionary or you know, have some kind of populist soundbite in the news. I'd like to see the Youth Guidance Center as a center for kids. I mean, we, we talk about shutting it down. Well, what are the alternatives? Um, you know, it's a prime piece of land, Twin Peaks. I'd like it to be a safe space for kids to go after school, to study, to have a, safe, to have a, a, a nutritious meal. Some kids never see another meal once they leave school or, you know, they, or they're unhoused. So um, that is my goal. I know there are a lot of people in the neighborhood, um, lifelong San Franciscans, multi-generational. They want to volunteer, and it's centrally located. I mean, it's a prime spot, and, you know, um, you know, you know the, the bus lines that go there, so it's very accessible to everyone. Um, can we get some kind of momentum to look at that? Because uh, when I heard that it was going to close, it was shocking to me because some, some of the youth that are housed there, they would lose their support system. It's not healthy to put someone, especially um, a young person whose first taste of this justice system is left there and they don't have their support system. You move them out of county, um, for those who, who don't have cars or transportation to visit their loved one, that just make, pushes them farther, deeper into the criminal justice system. Absolutely. I uh, co-sign everything you just said. Um, our office, Patty Lee, who's amazing and heads our defense wing of our work, um, uh, was our managing attorney for our youth defender unit for 30 years and has been at the office for 46 years. Um, she's been deeply involved in the effort to not just close juvenile hall, but build exactly what you're describing, a place that's community-centered, that provides services to young people, and for those who have to be detained temporarily for whatever reason, a more home-like environment. And so we are working on that. There was quite a bit of press and community attention on it a few years ago. That attention has gone away, and so so 
we would love to work with you to bring more attention to this issue and revive it because it requires a lot of people to make this dramatic transformation. I have a quick follow-up question. Um, so my experience as a prosecutor was, you know, it was a couple years ago, not that long, but it was a different, you know, I started at a, a different time. Um, different completely different prosecutors as well with different policies. Um, so one of the questions I have for you is, what is the training that you have for your misdemeanor public defenders for trials that doesn't require them to pick up many trials? So for example, my experience many times was that I need to take, I was told my managers, I'm not getting enough trials. I need to take this out to trial. This has to go to trial. Um, rather than really focusing from my perspective on what maybe the defendant's needs were, of maybe they don't want to get a trial. I've had that experience, regrettably, in court where I've had defendants say, I want to take the plea, and their public defender grab them and say, no, wait, blah, 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 blah. And it's been a mess. And I, I'm hoping that defendants with misdemeanors' lives are not just used as training grounds for public defenders or for prosecutors, you know, because it's not about just training um, the DAs and the, and the public defenders. It's about reaching justice, you know, and that to me justice is, you know, thinking about both sides, you know, the defendant has their rights and so do the victims have their rights. So I'm hoping to say this to express my own past frustration and I think frustration from other individuals of, you know, having defendants be the training ground for um, you know work because I I don't think that's ethical personally and that's just based on my experience and that's not every experience I can say I've had very positive experience I feel like justice has been served in situations but there is a culture of training you know um, attorneys but it impacting the defendants and the victims lives and I think that hopefully that's not something that is continuing um, because that's something I saw readily. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. And you can see from the mission that I shared at the beginning of the presentation, it's, it is about client-centered, holistic representation and trying to get people out of the system, period, yes. so that they can be with their families and live a, a good life um, with many opportunities. And so that's the goal, not trials. Yes. Um, a trial, if it's appropriate in the case, um, because there's evidence that supports the need for a trial. Um, so that certainly we are proud of our trial skills, um, but we that's we, we kind of see that in perspective. In terms of trainings, uh, this office does a lot of trainings. Uh, we have trainings almost every Wednesday on every topic under the sun, um, including many topics not about trials. So um, it, it's, been a, it's been great to see it. I, I've helped to organize some of those trainings also. Um, I, for example, I didn't highlight our immigration unit. We have a, an amazing immigration unit um, that helps people in terms of fighting their deportation, and they will often give trainings about uh, immigration considerations um, that impact a criminal case. That's actually a requirement that people think about what the immigration consequences might be of a plea or a certain outcome in a case. Um, so we plenty, plenty of trainings and it's ongoing at all times. Great to hear. Well, thank you so much, Angela. I'm just conscientious about the time and we will invite you back, but um, I expect that you're going to have more dialogue and meeting with us and our Inspector General. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do we have any public comments? 
For members of the public who would like to make public comment on line item three, San Francisco Public Defender's Office presentation, please approach the podium when it is free. Appears <coughs> to be no public comment. Okay, next agenda item, please. Calling line item four, San Francisco Sheriff's Office presentation informational item. Lisette Adams, Chief Deputy, will present on SFSO's custody division. Welcome, good Chief Adams. Good afternoon, Lisette Adams, Chief Deputy of San Francisco Sheriff's Office, Custody Division. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, we have a presentation. Um, happy to start with that or happy to start with questions. Entirely up to you which way you'd like to go. We'll, we'll go with the presentation. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Let's start the presentation. Um, I'm here to present on the Custody Division of the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. Next slide, please. I always want to start out with the core principles and core values of the Sheriff's Department that Sheriff Miyamoto has instilled upon us and past sheriffs before him, and that's service, professionalism, and pride. Uh, we make sure to keep reminding ourselves of that every day as Public Defender's Office has shown it's a challenging job as the, the conversations that we've had, it's challenging on both sides, on all sides, so we make sure to keep reminding ourselves throughout the challenges that that's what it's about, service, professionalism, and pride in the service and professionalism that we provide. Next slide, please. So in the custody division, we have a lot of things going, a lot of things at once. Um, just keeping the balls up in the air is what really the main focus of my day is every day. Um, so I'd just like to talk a little bit about the division projects that we have going or have completed in the last year. First one was the tablets. Um, as was discussed previously, community members, community groups work with the sheriff's office to get free tablets to the incarcerated population. On those tablets, they are able to access all the material on there. The tablet automatically translates it into the language of choice of the individuals. Um, we also use it for educational programs and processes and for some um, entertainment. Video visitation. We did this in response to COVID. When COVID hit, uh, we start shutting down the jails as was required by the city and county of San Francisco and the health officer. And in response to that, to keep people connected to their community and connected to their family, we brought up video visitation so that people, even though they couldn't have their loved ones come in and see them, will be able to still see them through the video visitations. Not ideal, but as those of us who survived COVID, we know that's how we kept in contact with a lot of people. What the Sheriff's Department did though, in addition, is we've kept that video visitation going even after COVID and as we brought up in-person visiting. So we have both going at the same time. That also applies to our legal visits. Our legal visits entirely before COVID was in-person. When COVID hit, while we did have some in-person um, legal visits, a lot of it, both at the request of the health officer, the public defender, and the deputized staff, and the incarcerated population, we went to video visitation for legal visits also. We continue to do that. Um, since it was one of the issues that was raised, I'd like to just talk about one of the challenges of video visitation in terms of both the community and legal. Our jails were not built for it. Our jails are 
surrounded by concrete and steel and all the things that have to be in place to keep the facility safe and strong, that's not the best conduit for Wi-Fi. So when you say why are we having um, the challenges in terms of audio and video, it's the physical structure that we have that we work with. Um, we have been working to try to put additional Wi-Fi, additional lines through. That requires money and that requires time, but the sheriff is committed to do it, and we have been doing it as we've gone along to try to keep improving the quality of the services that we provide through the video visits. But it is challenging just based on, for anyone who's been to the Hall of Justice, all of our jails were pretty much built like that. You know how solid those walls are, how they're built, and our jails was built that way too. So we continue to try to work on that. We've increased program hours. No, we are nowhere near program hours where we were uh, prior to COVID. Um, not a lot of people want to come to the jails. That's always been the case. We lost a lot of our providers when we shut down during COVID and getting them back to readjust their life and readjust the ability to come into the jail has been challenging. Allie Riker has been phenomenal in trying to make sure that we get as many people back in providing services as possible. But it is a challenge. It is one we are working to overcome, and we will work to overcome. I'm not sure if we can ever have enough program hours, but we are working on it. Facility upgrades, hardening of the jails. Uh, we tend to build our jails and walk away. It's not something that people um, like to think about spending money in, uh, but it is a building that takes um, wear and tear. Wear and tear. <laughs> it does. So uh, over time, if we don't keep the facilities up, they start deteriorating. It makes it dangerous for the incarcerated population. It makes it dangerous for the staff. And it makes it harder to keep the things going like we talked about the Wi-Fi. It's not just hardening, but it's improving the facility. And we're rehabbing our facilities while we're in there. So just take a moment of thinking about doing construction work on your house while you're living there. That's what we go through every day because we still have to keep the buildings up. We still have to keep them going. The more we do without doing that, when we actually have to do the work, it's a lot harder and it's a lot more money and a lot more intensive. Um, so as we get money in, we're going over deferred maintenance and reconstruction and it's tough. But a challenge that the sheriff is committed to do. Um, improve staff spaces. We all talk about wellness. We talk about, we realized under COVID just how much wear and tear, not only on the incarcerated, but on our staff. 16 hour days, at least two times a week is what our staff are doing. And most of them are doing three or four days because they don't like walking away knowing they're leaving their staff member, um, staff member um, significantly under and the facility unsafe. So our people are not only doing the mandatory, and it is mandatory at this point, six, two 16-hour days, they're doing more to keep the facilities up and running and to safeguard the incarcerated population and their partners. <laughs> Staff development, Sheriff Miyamoto is a true believer in training. Training responds or helps with some of the issues that were raised here about 
how do we make sure that our staff are adept at seeing what's happening, um, recognizing changes in behavioral health and psychiatric issues. That comes from staff development and to keep our staff going and keep them up to date on the best practices, new technology, and finding out best things that are happening in the community. So that goes to the staff development. Reduction of ADCEP population, that's administrative separation. We, we put people or people are placed in administrative separation for the safety and security of the facility, largely, and sometimes for their own safety. We are doing everything we can in our power to reduce that population, to reduce that isolation. We have gone through and working with a number of community partners, um, both within San Francisco and also national. We're working with Chicago Beyond, and one of the focuses is reduce the isolation of being in jail. And administrative separation is a greater isolation than just normally being in jail because you're not in the general population with everybody else. So we're working, working on reducing that population and we're doing that through programs, through jail behavioral health, and just honestly deputies talking one-on-one -on -one and saying, how can I help? How can I keep you out of here? How can I keep you in general population and going forward? Increase in automation. Uh, we are trying to, you know, those who've worked in San Francisco know as close as we are to Silicon Valley, we are still incredibly behind in using the technology. The more technology we use, the hopefully the more we can use our staff members to do what we like to do, which is the one-on-one -on -one and dealing with people directly instead of dealing with the numbers and keeping track of things that hopefully automation can do better for than for us. Free phone calls and no, sur no surcharge commissary. That was already talked about in the public defender's conversations. Um, so I'll just leave it there. Those are pro projects that the division also worked on. Challenges, we've heard it here. Staffing, staffing and staffing. We can talk all day about staffing. But it's also the resources beyond staffing. We talked about um, the tablets. We're in tier. We, we put out tablets and we're pretty much replacing our tablets at least once a month or every two months. Um, incarcerated population, not all of them appreciate some of the messages that come through the tablets and have to take it out on somewhere and those tablets are one of them. So we have to keep replacing some of the technology that we have there. Uh, we talked about rebuilding the jail while we're still existing in it. Um, improving occupied spaces, same thing, project management. Uh, big thing is we have projects, keeping track of projects. We, in my division alone, we've got about 15, 20 projects going. And so you times that by every division and the sheriff's having his own projects and individual units and facilities having their projects, just keeping track of those projects and keeping them on track is very time consuming. consuming. Culture shifts. Um, we had one under COVID. Uh, we having one as we come out of COVID. We have them as we keep up with the expectations of society. Um, let's be honest, when before COVID, there was a shift to no jails. Um, let's start shutting down, let's move people out. There's another shift going on in the community. The Sheriff's Department has to respond to what's happening, whether it's the courts that go through no bail, um, not making people go to court, more arrest, while the Sheriff's Department is part of the system, a lot of things that are happening around us are not things that the Sheriff's Department is instituting it,
but we are where it falls back on. So we're going through that shift and dealing with that as the community changes. Change in custodial population. There was a time when I first started, there were misdemeanors in jail. Um, we had a population where 40 to 50% were misdemeanors in for drug use, and you know they would dry out, they would get out of custody. What we largely have in jail are people who are in jail for violence and serious charges. Um, the population of that was incarcerated when I came in is not a population that we have now. So we have to change not only our practices, but our training and our development of our staff to respond to the kind of population that we currently have. Competing priorities, everyone knows it. Um, they're there, and we continue to meet those challenges. Court-mandated activities, outside air project, um, also covered by the Public Defender's Office, and mandatory lights out. Um, we are responding to uh, things that we've done for years, practices, and as we go through and times change, expectations change, our jails are not new jails. Our jails were built 20, 30, 40 years ago in some cases. And so those jails are not always built for the expectations that society has. Uh, Sheriff's Office does not disagree with those expectations largely, but we do have to do them within the existing facilities that we have and the resources that we have. So we continue to turn, uh, try to adjust to meet those challenges. Next slide, please. Um, this is just a chart of the people that are the command staff within the division. I, as the chief deputy, I have a couple of administration people that work with me. We have three captains, um, our classification unit, Central Warrants Unit and our Hospital Ward 77L. Uh, next slide, and we'll talk a little bit about what each one of them does in a couple of slides ahead. As we said, um, staffing has come up. Staffing has been an issue. If you look at these slides, you can see our hires are not meeting our separations. The last time that happened when our hires met our, se our separations was fiscal year 18-19. So since then, we have generally had more separations than we've had hires. In the last six months, that tide has turned. We've gotten a few more people than we have people leaving. The unfortunate part is that we tend to hire in spurts. When I came in back in 92, 93, the Sheriff's Department um, pretty much doubled their size in, the last, in about four or five years from that period, and that was largely due to consent decrees from the court. Well, that generation, my generation, are retiring. Um, so we're losing over the last five to six years that three or 400 that came together, that's the three or 400 leaving together. Um, Right before COVID, we had a spurt in hiring, and you can project in about 15, 20 years, that group is gonna leave in mass also. Um, so when we do not do continuous hiring, when we have to resort to bulk hiring to make up for past years, whether it be because of budgets or hiring or that other agencies are providing longevity or retention or hiring bonuses that currently our department is unable to 
provide because of budgeting. When we do that, we hire in mass, we lose them in mass. And that hurts the continuity of the department and the services that we can provide. Next slide, please. County Jail One is our intake facility. It's located at 425 7th Street. Um, the facility commander is Captain Bill Kelleher. It's a type one facility, and basically what, it, basically what a type one facility means, it is largely due for people who are initially arrested or who are being transferred or released to another facility. Under a type one facility, you cannot be at a type one facility longer than 24 hours based on Title 15 mandates. Uh, basically, it's not meant to be a place that you sleep. We don't have beds there. We don't have all of the things that we have in our housing facilities. It is just there for the initial arrestees or transfers. As you can see, we're, while we're authorized 83 people, currently there are 54 sworn there. Uh, next slide, please. This slide just talks a little bit about the average incarcerated population. But what it does do, if you look over to the right in writing, it talks about some of the things that are done at that facility and the services provided. Uh, when you first come into our county jail, as soon as you are escorted through the door, right in front of you is a chair. And that's the chair for triage. That's your first, first encounter with our jail health services. They take an initial assessment of you to make a determination whether or not you can safely come into this jail, even if it's for an hour or two hours. They take a basic mental, a basic physical and mental health assessment of you um, before you go on with the booking process. In addition to jail health services, you will see jail health services a minimum of twice. You do your initial assessment there. If you're going to stay, you are then seen by jail health services again. Um, you went from triage, now you're at the assessment. At the assessment, they take a, little, a, a much larger in-depth conversation with you and history of your medical process and the things that you have going. And the good thing is, uh, being in San Francisco, unlike other counties who contract out to for-profits, um, who may or may not provide the best of service, we have the Department of Public Health that work with us. So every information that they're getting from the custody, um, they're also able to double check it. And if that person has been part of going to either Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital, or any other DPH's clinics, that medical record is there and available to them so they can tie it all together. So, and that goes also when they're released. It's not just when you come in, we also provide you any medication that you need, I think, for the next 48 or 72 hours to get you to the point where you can go see your own health care provider, um, get you over to the clinics. We have referrals to other clinics outside. While you're in custody, the DPH will provide the eye van to come by so you can have your eyes screened, get glasses if needed. They also have doctors from UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital come and provide clinics for just about every well-being that there is and every medical specialty. If we do not provide it at the jail, then we transport you to San Francisco General Hospital to provide care. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the jail ward. If you seem to be having some kind of mental issues, either because of your incarceration or a history of it, we also have jail behavioral health services 
at County Jail One. They will also speak to you, see you. They'll check your history, see if you, there's any record of that, but also assess where you are right then and there. There was some discussion about detox. Um, are people going through detox? Our detox is right across from our medical station so that the nurses can see and keep an eye on a person in detox and both by our policies and Title 15, anybody that is placed in detox is seen by a minimum of twice an hour by the custody staff and twice an hour by the medical staff. So anybody who is going through detox is seen at least four, four times an hour to make sure their well-being and that they're provided the care that's necessary. And that includes uh, being provided detox medications that are prescription medications for detox? I do not believe they provide that immediately. Okay. Um, I don't think that that level of detox kicks in immediately requiring that medication. But what we have done is we've make the, made arrangements with the Department of Public Health or Jail Health Services to make sure that anybody going through detox does not stay as much as possible. You know, again, not a system that's perfect. We, I fully acknowledge that. But as much as possible, once that those, those people are identified, we try to push them through the process as soon as possible and get them upstairs to County Jail 2, where we have a nurse that goes around every hour checking on people who are in detox. They definitely provide the medication there. We'll have them there for 48 to 72 hours, and that's definitely where the medication starts getting provided. Most of the people who initially come in and are at County Jail 1 are still under the influence. So that's not the time to start providing medication for them. But we do make sure that they go into an area where we keep all of our detox, um, blood pressure, temperature, and vitals are checked once they get upstairs and on detox. I believe it's every two to three hours. Um, so we make sure that the detoxes are provided the care that's necessary. We have the OR project and pretrial to determine if they should be released. Also, going through the buffing, the buffing process where they check and see if the judge will release them on their own cognizance in response to the no, no bail. Um, but for the custodial staff, perhaps the most important thing they do outside of the jail health services classification. And our classification are run by our sworn staff. Our classification sits down, they run the individual's history, they have conversations with them. Has, have you been in jail before? Have you been in this jail before? Um, have you suffered any trauma in your life? Have you had any abuse issues? Do you have a drug issue? Do you need a special food? Do you, we cover the same things that medical covers, but not you know, in terms of, is there a medication that you need that you haven't told anybody about? Um, are you at danger for anybody else? Do you need to contact anybody? And take a history of them to make sure that we house people appropriately and safely. Um, the safety of the custodies are most important, but housing someone incorrectly could make it unsafe not only for them, but for the staff that are required to take care of them. Uh, the person gets booked into custody. We talked about the sobering cells. We have special cells down at County Jail 1 that are mandated by Title 15 that we put people in who are under the influence and un unable to care for themselves. We talked about jail health screening, and we also take DNA collection um, to go to the justice portion. There are certain charges that require or mandated to have DNA collection. That is done. 
to see if there's any cold cases or anything going forward in terms of that person. Fingerprinting, uh, picture taking, and we talked about the jail medical interview and assessment. Next slide, please. In the, custodial, in the custody division, we also have the central records and warrants. In terms of people in custody, these are the immediate liaisons with the courts. Uh, they run the warrants. It is run by Lieutenant Mark Conti, um, still housed in 850 Bryant for now, until we determine what's going on with that building. Uh, next slide, please. So in terms of incarceration, they maintain all of the incarcerated person's booking and records information, commitments, release calculations. They receive the court minutes and translate the court minutes into best practices and what needs to be done. Uh, they process the bail. They process all releases. But in addition, in our central records and warrant unit and what is taking up right now, I think dividing probably I'd say about 20 or 30% of our focus, and this is fairly new in this terms of units, is the public records request. We get a lot of public records requests. Uh, people are very interested in what's going on, documentation. That's a unit that we're, again, standing up on our feet and trying to get it up and running and trying to get the resources there. It is, as you can imagine, critically important to, for transparency's sake, to be able to provide the information that people request and also mandated by law. Next slide, please. County Jail 2 is also housed at 425 7th Street. That building has two jails, one on the first floor, which is County Jail 1, and the second, third, fourth, and fifth floor is County Jail 2. County Jail 2 is a type 2 facility. Uh, basically, type 2 facility means in terms of Title 15, we have both arraigned, pre-arraigned, sentence, everybody can go to this facility. Other than our type 1 facility, all of our jail facilities are like that type 2, which is a mix. Next slide, please. At County Jail 2, uh, our house, what we have, people that we house there are First and foremost, that is the only location that we hire our female, uh, that we house our female population. So all females are resident in San Francisco and incarcerated are housed at county jail number two. APOD, we have uh, transgender and we have some of our SNY, uh, which generally are our dropouts from gangs and people that can't go to general population, but do not arise to the level of needing to be an administrative separation. In CPOD, we have, on the lower level, we have our medical wing, where people who have medical needs are housed, and the upper level is our psychiatric. We have our psychiatric sheltered living unit for our female incarcerated population, and on the other side, we have our um, observation, which basically is the psychiatric unit one step below having to go to PES or 7L. These are people with severe psychiatric issues. Our psychiatric staff are there about 10 hours out of the day, 10 to 12 hours, and they are there to provide services to them, check on them, and make sure they continue. 
Depot is where our kitchen workers are, and we have some general population custodies there. EPOD is a little mix of everything. Uh, all male, but we have administrative separation. We have administrative separation on the upper level. On the lower level, we have general population. And Frank Pod is our intake and our administrative separation. So when they first come up from County Jail 1, generally they'll go to Frank Pod for our intake for 72 hours. That way they can be assessed further by classification, observed to make sure they have no other issues, and also medical staff is within that pod. So if they have any medical issues, they're, they're able to respond. And then from there, after about 48 or 72 hours, we move them on to other locations after both medical and custodial staff has had an, op an opportunity to observe them and make sure that we have them in the right place and they're getting the things need that they need. Uh, we have a kitchen in there that was recently remodeled and open. We, used to, we were using the 850 Bryant kitchen and when we shut down County Jail 4, we were a couple, about a year or two, we used the 850 Bryant kitchen. And then for about a year, again, remodeling as we're living in, we totally gutted the kitchen in County Jail 2 and rebuilt it. And during that time, we were funneling the food in from County Jail 3 by van. Uh, so we now have that kitchen up and running, um, totally remodeled. And again, remodeled while the jail was open. Uh, they actually cut a wall, cut a hole in the wall on the third floor inside and sort of had a elevator built on the outside to funnel the equipment and the people up to the kitchen. Um, so again, renovating while you're living in a place is not ideal. County Jail 2, we also have parent-child visits. Uh, we have and I apologize for not having a picture of it because it's an excellent picture. I hope you have seen it before. But we have a child visiting room that is a standalone room um, painted for bumblebees and honeycombs and child-friendly equipment and child-sized furniture. And there they have contact visits with their family members and the family members bring them to the jail. They're escorted up, upstairs by our nonprofits and volunteers, and they're able to engage directly with their family members, their children, for about an hour once a week. And then we have in-person visiting. Um, historically, we had visiting Saturday, Sunday, and holidays. Visiting were all during the daytime, pretty much from 8 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And that was Saturday, Sunday, and holidays. After COVID hit and when we brought visiting back up, I decided to address what I believed was an issue that should have been addressed a long time ago, and that not everybody has weekends off. Not everybody's daytime hours are available. I know to the extent that I finally have weekends off in this capacity. I've had it since I've been a captain. But for years, I worked, I worked weekends. And now on weekends, I'm probably sitting in a little league or peewee <laughs> soccer or football thing. Um, so having to choose between engaging with your kids in their activities and going to see a loved one in jail and only having just this time period seemed unfair. So when we brought back up visiting, uh, we decided to not only bring back up visiting, but expand it to the weekday hours. 
But again, limited resources. We have one visiting room at County Jail 2 um, to use throughout the population. So what we did was Tuesdays and Thursdays, we alternate between different pods to allow visiting to take place. It's not contact, it is through a screen, but that way it's now in the late afternoon, early evening. So people can go after work. They can bring their kids to visiting after school. And it gives them another opportunity based on their lifestyle to be able to change. On Wednesdays, we save that for our, 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 our inmate population who work for us. So we have workers who work in the kitchen or help clean the facility. Um, as an additional perk for that, we said we're going to set a visiting for you. And while generally visiting is 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes per visit for our, um, inmate workers, we put it up to 45 minutes. Next slide, please. Zuckerberg, uh, SFGH7D7L, uh, run by Sergeant John Malaspina. Next slide, please. So 7D7L, on the 7L side, we house our critically psychiatric, our critical psychiatric incarcerated persons. Um, these are people with, who at that time cannot make it in the jails. They're sent to 7L to get um, assistance from the psych staff there, medication if it's warranted and appropriate, and to get them stabilized to be able to manage in jail, in a, in a jail setting. They're also um, responsible for managing the security or assisting with the deputized staff who go out there. One of the things we do a lot of, um, particularly down at County Jail 2, because that's our initial intake, is spend time at the hospital with people who come in. Unfortunately, the incarcerated population are not always the healthiest, particularly when they first come into jail. Um, as was pointed out, they're going through um, detox. And the drugs that are out there now, uh, where before detox was easily managed in a jail, we're having more and more where people are coming in and just based on the drugs they're going through, they go out to the hospital for a detox-related issue, and sometimes they're out there for five, six days. And that's five, six days of a deputized staff having to be there 24-7, um, providing security for them and for the hospital, because they are still in custody. Whatever the thoughts are, whether they not should or should not be, once they are incarcerated, our job is to provide the security. So we're there 24-7, and I can tell you last week, County Jail 2 had one person that, uh, two people at PES, with the, which is the psychiatric emergency, which is a mix of everybody brings every, someone to psychiatric emergency, just as it says, it's people who are in psychiatric emergency, psychiatric distress. We had two people down there. We had two off wards. At our high point, we had two people in PES, three people on an off ward, which means they were put on a ward at the hospital and we had two MEHs, which is basically someone sitting in the emergency room. So out of one jail, we had five people or five custodies out, at, out to the hospital. And one of those custodies was an MR4, which for us means is a two deputy escort. So that took six deputies out of the jail and that ran for a good two or three days before we got any relief. That six deputies 
for three shifts, 24 hours a day for three days. That hurt. So when we talk about the short staffing, even though you can look at our numbers and say, yeah, they're short, it's also in response to the things that are required to do and we are required to do at a moment's notice. Um, County Jail 2, they went out during the night team. I believe we had in one night team, which goes from 1900 to, I'm sorry, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., they had three hospital runs. That night team came in, three deputies below minimum, three hospital runs, that took them six below minimum, and they had to make do with the staff they had then and there and make the adjustments. So in terms of legal visits, and while this was a night team, the same thing can happen on a day team. In terms of legal visits, Zoom visits, whatever the visits are, we don't cancel, and I have reiterated that to my staff. We, legal visits cannot be canceled. You're absolutely right, they have a constitutional right to it. That doesn't mean that we can do it right away. And that's what I get from our staff is I'll get the complaint, they'll talk to PLS, I will go down and talk to the captain, talk to the staff member, find out what happened. And they'll give us, this is what happened this day. We had three hospital runs, there was a fight. Um, we were having a worker doing some painting in this room over there required, required a deputy escort and they had to wait for 45 minutes and then they left. So Chief Adams, I'm looking at the clock. Could we wrap up in two minutes? I, you know, we'll Absolutely. have you back at a future date when there's other issues um, that you can present with us. Absolutely. Uh, can we go to the slide that talks about the annex, please? That slide right there. In response to the surge in the population, and absolutely are, I, I took over this position in February of 2023. The jail population has increased 45% since I've been there. Um, so in one year, we've gone up about 45% in our jail population, and in response to that, we've had to reopen um, a couple of dorms of the annex. Next slide, please. We talked about classification, so let's slip o uh, skip over the next two slides, please. And let's just go to the jail population. This is just a tracking that we've done on where the jail population has gone, where it started back in 2023 of January, and just where it's gone today. Uh, the numbers on the slide can tell you this month, our average population, our, uh, excuse me, not this month, since this month has just started, but our average population of January was 1,152, 5% change in one month, and a 44% change from last year. And where it comes from is our bookings. Our bookings have gone up 16%. Um, but in, in relation, our releases have also gone on. Um, some people are staying more, um, but we are getting a lot more people coming to our custody. Next slide, please. And this just provides a breakdown of our jail population. And considering the time, uh, I'll close there. Next thing is just um, more classification information. Um, so I'll open it up for questions if anyone has any for me. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you want to hold questions or we could submit them through Chief Jew and then um, have Chief Adams answer them just in the interest of time to get to our charter. Yeah, that's fine with me. I did want to just bring up, I had previously asked for data 
um, and I'm not sure if you were, this was conveyed to you, but specifically one of my questions was regarding the tablets, mm -hmm. is what are the expectation of privacy that the um, defendants have on those tablets? Because there's going to be metadata and access to that. I know that there's the recorded line, that there's the preface of saying, hey, you're being recorded, right? Mm -hmm. And it's everything you say can be used, you know? Um, so I think that would be helpful to, to <coughs> learn what that was um, at, a, at a different point. Quick answers, none. There's but, no, okay. Yeah, uh, we'll get more information of what's provided, but um, right now there's none. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just had one quick question as well, too. I mean, outside of the biggest elephant in the room when we talk about staffing and, and resources and the money for it, just what would be some suggestions that you can think of mm -hmm. that would help with staffing, just in terms of you talked a little bit about you know having groups that are coming in like what are some strategies or some things that we might be able to to do or that folks aren't thinking about and should be thinking about because it's the same thing with the police department right just quick you know yep. one one or two things um definitely our recruitment uh we need money on our recruitment um maybe stop going to the same pool of everyone else uh, california's pulling people in every directions we might have to go outside of the state a lot of departments go to other areas where, let's be honest, the money that we provide in California seems large compared to what they get. I talked to the captain in charge of that uh, last week, and I told him, I said, you know, back east, they're 20 and done. For most, most departments in back east, they do 20 years, and they're retired automatically required. They're still feel fairly young at 20, year 40, 45, and if you go to the big cities, they're not going to be in culture shock by coming here. Uh, the other thing I would add, um, signing bonuses. Uh, it's, we have zero in terms of a signing bonus, and we're competing with people with $25,000, $40,000 signing bonuses. And the final thing I would say is retention pay, retention pay, and retention pay, because as important as it is gets new people, one of the things that we're having a problem in the department right now is keeping people here and getting that knowledge to pass. Um, from time to time, I'll jokingly remind the sheriff when he reminds me I'm at will, and you know it's done in a joking manner. I also remind him I'm also at 30 years and should be gone. <laughs> and give, I, I'm trying to find there a reason go. to stay. I'm trying to find a reason to stay. And while I love the department, I want to support the department and want to support the deputies. I am maxed out, and I'm staying for the love of the department, but my family is also saying, why are you there? Mm. Um, so if there was a retention pay, I could actually give them an answer. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah, and, and succession planning is so important, too. Without that institutional knowledge, we don't have good succession planning. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, do we have public comment on this item? For members of the public who would like to make public comment on line item four, San Francisco Sheriff's Department presentation, please approach the podium when it is free. There appears to be no public comment. So I'm going to have um, Marshall kind indulge me, and I kind of uh, gave him the heads up that we may have to move him to the next meeting. So we're going to get to the charter. I also think it's important that um, Member Wechter also be able to hear your presentation because it's so important. Um, and that would be the firewalls on the administrative investigations, criminal investigations, and then the Fifth Amendment protections. 
So thank you, Marshall. We have your, in so I would ask the members to actually just review that before the next um, meeting and so you'll know the kind of presentation that Marshall will give. So next, um, because we are on a pretty urgent timeline in terms of this, that's why I wanted to give to the charter amendments. Um, and then I'm gonna have um, our Deputy City Attorney, Janet Clark, kind of preface uh, what happens. I think she sent out an email kind of detailing the procedure. Um, and we have several documents. Um, I purposely didn't do any more because um, I didn't want it to have it like an Enseriata meeting. So all these documents are here for our discussion purposes. <coughs> I will keep a running list and then um, these will be recommendations to our potential legislative sponsor who hasn't 100% agreed yet, but we're like 95% there. So I just want to give you that as a layout. Sure. Um, so this would be calling line item six, amendment, oh, sorry. amendment to San Francisco Charter 4.137 language, discussion possible action item. Discuss and review proposed drafts of amendment language to SF Charter 4.137. Um, thank you. So the process, I think that's what you're asking about, is um, so for any charter amendment to be introduced, it needs a sponsor, and that can be someone on the Board of Supervisors or the Mayor's Office. And what happens is once there's a sponsor, that, um, that sponsor then works with the City Attorney's Office, and most likely someone on my team, most likely me, frankly, um, to uh, help draft whatever amendments the um, sponsor wants. And, um, and at that point, then it's introduced at the board, and then the board votes. Um, and I think that they're due in, I think that the due date would be mid, somewhere around mid-May. Um, and so what this board can do is, is make recommendations and then um, present them to a sponsor. But, um, but it would be ultimately up to the sponsor what any amendment would look like. Um, and so what I did was some of the drafts that were circulated, which I'm pretty sure were posted um, on the, in connection with the agenda items. Um, but so I went through and um, looked at some of the suggestions and it, it looked at some of the, the suggested or proposed amendments and made some suggestions. It, that's not a substitute for the process that will happen later if there is a sponsor. Our office will go through, you know, word and period by, I mean, in, in you know, great, um, like, we have to approve it as to form, and so in order to do that, we would look at it carefully and working with the sponsor. So this, so my review wasn't approval as to form, but just to give suggestions on sort of the substance, substantive issues that I that I identified, which I've, you know, shared with the board. So any any other questions on the process? I'm happy to answer them. No, I think we can dive right in. And what really, I'm going to do really quick, actually, Janet, one quick question, and it's probably a rhetorical question. I'm hoping. The sponsor can also be the person that originally wrote the legislation, right? That's correct. President Sue, as we talk about 95% in terms of potentially having someone to sponsor, have we had discussion and conversation with the person who originally wrote the legislation? I, I haven't yet. I've had it with somebody who is um, on budget and will have more longevity. Um, so um, I will have the further conversation. Um, I just wanted to put it out there first. Um, so... Really, what I first put out is just a cleanup, is, is you know, as to what we're calling ourselves. And um, so I will reach out, but I first wanted to reach out to see if there was even an interest. Um, right now, 
as you can imagine, the, the focus was really just on budget, so I didn't want to disturb it. So we've had conversations. I haven't formally asked, or um, but I wanted to find someone who was sort of Switzerland <laughs> to get everyone together, and that was the main purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. So if I might, I was just going to go through section by section, and if there are no particular objections, we will just make it as a list of a recommendation. And then for those things that we might be more stuck on, we might just um, kind of have all of the particular recommendations that we think should be considered by um, the legislative sponsor or sponsors and then the city attorney. And that way we can try to get through um, by five o'clock. Um, so I have a question. Um, you mentioned a list of recommendations. So, but what I'm seeing here are red lines of different documents that have been provided. So, are what we are doing now? Are you creating, are you creating a new document that's going to be a red line, or literally providing a list of our recommendations? Um, I I will do both, depending on what's recommended by the city attorney. But um, what was helpful when um, shopping for a legislative sponsor was to say. You know, these are our main things. We first need to clean things up. And what has been on our agenda forever and a day is kind of um, focusing and limiting what law enforcement agency looks like because that has impact on the hiring of our staffing for our Office of Inspector General. And so those were the two main things. I didn't want to say, do you want to be a legislative sponsor without anything? So part of it was the document that you see that I had created was mainly more of a cleanup to have consistent language um, and consistent reference to acronyms. And so part of my, I guess, idiosyncratic thing is I don't have articles before an acronym if it refers to an entity, but for an individual, I do. So and um, so you made mainly drafting. Yeah, suggestions. So yeah. that was just the basis. Okay. But that they could reject the entire thing. I just I didn't want to just go in there without them having an idea of what was going to be there. Um, and then the city attorney works with the legislative sponsor or sponsors. Um, I cannot be a part of it unless the legislative sponsor or sponsors uh, want me to be a part of it. So there are conversations. Um, although when I approached uh, this, this office, um, they said, you know, we would welcome your help. So that's where we also, um, you know, ha are, are part of the process. And if we need to, you know, we could have a special meeting in between as the process goes on too to further deliberate. I have a question. So the, um, the you had a rec I, I know Michael had his recommendations, you had your recommendations, and Jason, mm -hmm. would it be like a hodgepodge of a, all those recommendations? Yeah, and then, and then um, okay, you said carry that. on, and okay. then also um, from the Inspector General, we had some suggestions. So I have those in my brain, and that's why, um, but I, I couldn't discuss it with any of you mm -hmm. because we have to have a public meeting, and so that's where I'm gonna bring you through and where we get to certain points where there are different, um, um, suggestions, I will point that out, and then we can um, comment on on that. Does that sound right? Sound clear to you? Yeah. Yeah. So the, just my one suggestion would be if, if it's going to be, if they are going to be recommendations of the board, then the board, you know, you should vote on okay. each recommendation, or if you have a collection of them, you can, it doesn't have to be each individual line, but right, just right. be real clear what recommendations um, you're and making. And then if we just have a general consensus, do you think we still have to take a vote? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll do that. Okay. So the first item is what do we even call ourselves? Um, so it's no longer the department, so it's not really the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board. Um, 
I thought about, and I think I um, threw this out there, the Board of Sheriff Oversight, only to distinguish ourselves from being an independent board, because even the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board sounds like we might be under the Sheriff's Office or Sheriff's Department. So I also thought about paralleling the Police Department of Accountability, but then if we had the Board of Sheriff's Accountability, then that's the same acronym as the um, uh, Boy Scouts of America. And then I want to avoid SOB, which would have been the Sheriff's Oversight Board. So, um, so by default, I ended up with, uh, um, with BSO. That sounds good. Board of Sheriff Oversight. And so that kind of just culminates, I mean, even though the sheriff is generally singular, I'm just using it kind of like police. So, okay, we're good with BSO. So do we need to vote? Shall we take a vote on that? It, what, I mean, it's, it's up to you how you proceed. But, if, yeah, you can vote on each one at a time or you can vote at a, as a clump of them together. I just want to make sure it's clear what you're voting on. Okay. If that makes sense. Um, why don't we just go one at a time just to make it clear so we don't go back and then we have to reiterate everything. And let me just share for the record, for me personally, I'm, I'm against this. And the reason I am is just kind of the process in terms of what I'm hearing and just kind of how I'm feeling. Okay. Uh, especially around the fact that there's a lot of work that's been done that's been great work by all of you here that if we don't get a sponsor, we get a sponsor and it doesn't take that all the work was really for not. So I just think for me, from a processy standpoint, I would have loved to feel more comfortable saying we have someone that wants to sponsor this. There have been conversations that have been had, and this is what we're going to propose versus I kind of feel like it's a little cart before the horse for me. Oh, okay. Um, so we still have to have the conversation as a board. So do we? For sure. I mean, so just to actually just lay these things out? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. But yeah. So, just put that out. Yeah. There. So okay. do you, so do we want to go item by item and just say, is there a motion to call ourselves the Board of Sheriff Oversight? I personally don't want to go through item by item. I think that's a waste of time. I think we should just make the list, make a list right, um, okay. and then okay. go from there. Okay. So, okay. We'll talk it through, and then if there's any particular flags, yeah. we'll highlight. People feel okay. strongly. Okay. Um, okay. So then um, we went back and so looked at the board seats, and I know from Member Gwynn uh, there was a flag that one of the seats be from a labor organization, but um, to emphasize that it's a labor or organization representing law enforcement. Oh, yeah. uh, send a re uh, email to update just to keep the original language. So to disregard my proposed change. Oh, okay. I didn't get that last one. Okay, sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I tried to just... Yeah, yeah, so sorry. I don't even look at emails right before the meeting, so okay. But that's better anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's better so it's that made it easier here. because I thought that would, might have been a problem. Yeah, okay. Um, so then um, we next go to training, and we know that it was actually difficult to actually get training and, and onboarding in particular time. So um, there was a little change on that for 180 days and 20 hours. I think um, the training is costly, and it's, it's staff and time-consuming. Uh, woo, good rain here. Um, so um, I purposely actually tried to integrate training, I mean, with the presentations we have here. So in, if people don't feel strongly or feel strongly, just throw out whatever you want in terms of training. Looks great. Qu sorry, okay, question. Sorry. We're looking at the February 20th. Yeah, and then the other documents from um, Member Wechter as well as Member Nguyen. Well, I thought uh, Do you have that? Member 
Quinn said no. Oh, no, that we're, we're looking at training, though. And, and Member Wechter had his suggestions on training, which is, is not identical to. So that is, um, and I think in the future we just need to label. But this is with the, um, the from the Firefox with the red. Yeah, I think since we're all looking at three different documents, there is a proposed amendments, which is President Sue's. We have the red line, which is Commissioner Nguyen, and then we have. Oh, no, no, no. So that's what. That, that's what uh, Wechter's. Wechter's. The red line. Yeah. Okay. And then the other one that's um, some cross up, but with blue, would be from uh, Member Nguyen. I see. Yeah. Okay, great. Perfect. You know, one other thing you could do is you could agree as a board, I'm just throwing out suggestions um, because it's 4.30, that you submit all of your, you know, each red line and identified as whoever suggestion, suggested them and then the sponsor could, could consider all of them. And that's another possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, I, we don't have a lot, so I think that we can get through this. And so I just wanted to um, throw it out. And just philosophically, I like to be a little bit more general than... Um, specific because sometimes the more you put in the more limiting you end up being so mm -hmm. and sometimes the small changes you can take out a word and it could um, uh, make make all the change without having to add extra language so instead of so just to understand the the meat of this proposal it's like taking instead of 90 we're doubling the hours of training for 100 no, oh, no, no, we're, no, we're extending the days because oh, it wasn't it. practical to actually have someone onboarded and then get training within the 90 days. Um, and then we realistically just put the 20 hours. I think it was originally there was a proposal to have 80 hours and it would be phased in during an yeah, entire year. No. And, and so I think with, I don't know how you felt, but the 20 hours was a good foundation Absolutely. for us. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. yeah, it was a great training. Um, and I didn't specify who was going to do the training. Um, when someone says experts in the field, that could be subjective. So I left that kind of clean. Um, so then moving on, mm -hmm. um, it's just a little bit of cleanup on the, um, the terminology. But also now we're looking at our powers and duties. Uh, Member Wechter wanted to have ac unfettered access to information and records. And um, that concerns me a little bit because um, I view our board as quasi-judicial, and just as uh, the presentation that, that um, Marshall Kine was going to give, we don't want to have information that may accidentally um, reveal confidential information. Um, and I think the investigations are best left with the Office of in um, Inspector General. And if we do want additional information, we should actually go through the um, Inspector General. That makes sense. Sorry, um, like, what page are we on? Um, yeah, I think so it may be helpful page. if we um, reference the page, the, yeah, so or at least the section. Okay, so, so, we're, we yeah, so we're under um, B, the BSO powers and duties. Yes. Oh. So if you if you follow that section, I think. Um, okay, got it, got it. So what I see is a lot more just cleanup. It's just uh, drafting yeah. cleanup. Yes. Yes. Um, and then okay. following that, we go on, and then we have the um, Office of Inspector General. So that's just cleanup. And I apologize. I'm trying to catch more where I had a typo of BOS instead of BSO. So next we go to the OIG powers and duties. And so this in particular is where um, Vice President Carrion weighed in. But it's also about 
reviewing things that are, are in custody. And so we know that the, the job of the deputies has been expanded with um, Tenderloin, so we're out in, in patrol. So um, I thought about just in a more broad sense, rather than saying we're going to look at um, injuries or deaths based on shootings or where we are, um, I'm thinking about the terminology SFSO-related death or injury. And that way, it's a little bit more broad. I didn't want to say SFSO um, involved because we could have a situation like we've had in the past where it's a facility or a building that the sheriff's office um, uh, uh, keeps as under pro their protection, such as general hospital. And if there's, say, a particular fight or somebody missing and there's an injury or a death, it is SFSO related, but it's not SFSO involved. So I thought that that might um, be broad enough to encompass everything where we didn't have to specifically spell out whether it's in custody, out of custody. Um, yeah, I think my comment, though, is um, officer-involved shootings don't always involve deaths and injuries, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it should just be tied to deaths and injuries. That's why I said officer, or it would be deputy-involved yeah. deputy okay. De so, shootings, excessive. So we should have a separate thing just to mention shooting. And I don't know, um, and Marshall, maybe you could help me, or um, Member Brookter, in general, are all the or Janet, are all the shootings just pro forma investigated by um, the the oversight body? So, like the, the police commission, they I think they look at every shooting. So, I, yes. So yeah. the inspector general would look at every shooting. So, do we need to even sp spell, it out. spell it out? Well, right now, what it doesn't provide the. It doesn't provide authority for that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I think we should spell out the shooting. Yes. Um, okay, and that would be under um, two. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, subdivision yep. E. Yep. Two. Yeah. And then, the, and then, are people okay with the other? Otherwise, like taking out the in custody and talking about SFSO related death or injury yes okay okay and then moving on that's a that's more cleanup um, oh no one really important thing is so the authority for the OIG to look at um, complaints between SFSO employees or between SFSO employees and SFSO contractors so that's a labor issue that um, our deputy city attorney brought up so maybe we need to reword that or look at particular jurisdiction that was that was under um, e1 yeah my uh, recommendation is that you don't include complaints between you know employees basically the um, employees and other employees and employees and contractors so that falls under DHR in the city attorney's office it it falls under DHR's jurisdiction now okay um, so it's on under E, the way the language read, receive, review, and investigate complaints against um, SFSD employees and SFSD contractors. And then, and then we, it's the comma. And then what was the proposed between. is between SFO employees or between SFO employees and contractors. It's that language that. Okay, so we um, take out that entire yeah. clause between. Um, yeah. Okay. Now, is there an instance where internal affairs actually looks at some of the things, or is it automatically referred to DHR? Um, 
I'm not really sure. I think I think they do, but um, Chief Jude, no. complaints between employees. Chief Jude, does Internal Affairs look at those? Sorry to put you on the spot. Sorry. Um, so so we're, we're going to take out the clause of complaints between SFSO employees or between SFSO employees or, and contra SFSO contractors um, because that's usually handled by DHR. But my question is, it's likely to go through internal affairs or at least you would know about it, right? We would know about it. And, um, so are you talking about the shootings? Is that what you're no, talking no, we're just about talking about just complaints between employees and then complaints between employees and contractors. We had added that as expanding the jurisdiction for the OIG powers and duties, um, but we were recommended that maybe we take that out so because it, it goes through DHR and we don't want conflicting um, resolutions. I also think it's a human resource issue. Um, I don't believe that... I have, we have legal here too. Oh, yeah, legal. Yes. I'm ready. Sorry. <laughs> that, yeah. So that I can speak to that specifically. It's on a case by case basis. If it has a CIU element and there's a criminal investigation, it will be handled by them. If it's an EEO complaint, it will be handled by IA, DHR, and our internal office. Okay. And if it is an administrative issue, it could not rise to the level of IA. It's a case-by-case -case basis, okay. so there can't be so any will, general rule. So we will take that out, so we, it's safer to be silent on that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry to put you on the spot. Um, yeah, I'm not on the labor team, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So just to be clear, Janet has a lot of layers, so even when things go to her with their government team, they also refer to the other teams like labor and, and so, yeah. Okay, so um, other than that, that's cleanup. Um, we've added uh, what Member Wechter had raised to have um, audit reports. Uh, we're not specifying who actually conducts the audits, but there are professional certified auditors. So I don't want to say that we're going to get statistical reports and audit reports and it's somebody just throwing it together. I mean, I hope that we have the properly credentialed people to make sure that the reports actually are meaningful. Who gets audited in this, in, with this line? With this um, it's, it's, it, it's so the inspect the office of inspector general would be auditing the sheriff's operations and numbers and then so um, it's putting it in there where where they're looking for an audit and then kind of risk management so uh one thing we talk about is if we do things it's hard to show what we prevented but if we prevent even a single lawsuit we've paid for totally. our department you yeah. know so so that's the main thing and we we saw an employment lawsuit that was recently rendered um, a, a few months ago, and that was like a million dollars for the plaintiffs, so. I would like question. to make a, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. Question, um, yeah. does this open up the door? Because I don't know what the Office of Inspector General staff requirements are. Does this, does this line like require us to like make sure we have staffing appropriate for that? Yeah, everything, I mean, there's a, there's a catch-all at the end that it's subject to budget and resources. So there's a catch-all at the end of this charter anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also think the language should be a little bit more clear and, and say submit an audit report of the sheriff's activities or, you know, to the sheriff and BOS. Okay. So that's clear. So, so, or should we say operations? How's yeah, that? exactly. Okay. Operations. Okay. So we'll just do, or, or SFSO operations.
This one I want to think a little bit longer on okay. just because I I'm trying to understand um, if it just opens up a can of worms to staff for it and then require like uh, I mean I, I do understand the importance of it because you know I want to make sure that we're not doing anything unlawful and then add to like legal um, Wait, so which section are you talking about? It's the, it's, um, the language e. in, um, no, would, and I added item number seven under E, OIG powers and duties. So it's um, the added item seven. I just mean which draft are you on? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's the draft uh, with my initials on it. So February 20th. Yeah. Dated. And actually, this is really February 6th. I don't, on the 20th, I just tried to catch all the um, corrections for BSO instead of BOS, but I didn't even in this, so. And you know, I think that for me, I don't mind t even tabling this because the first report is from 2026. So we don't need to make that decision about the audit report right now. The only reason yeah. I can see some concerns of like, what's the purpose of the audit report? Yeah. What is the audit report gonna be consistent of? Yeah. How is it gonna right. be used? Right. Yeah. Because I'm not trying to give the IG to more have work. to do more work. We, we could actually request it outside of the charter. We can just say we need exactly. an audit. Um, I just, you know, uh, Member Wechter was pushing it and I actually have it on the timeline anyway, what we're gonna discuss later in the fall. Yes. So we don't need to, we could eliminate it if you want and not even make it a recommendation. I, I agree, I would agree with that okay. for this purpose. Okay. But there's no, just in terms of uh, Member Afumango's question, there's no legal reason why you couldn't require that. I mean, just, yeah. just to follow Although up. It I, just, I, it just you can also do it the way you've described, <laughs> which is probably better, but I just wanted to Right, and it just kind loop. of confounds things. If, if we're placing this before the voters, if they see too many changes, they might even vote everything down. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of moving balls. So um, I think in general, sometimes just getting a cleanup is easier because we've got a lot of cleanups on the ballot. Um, so those were the, the main things. Um, I, let's see, G just was clean up to fix um, the reference to the sheriff's office. And also with requesting um, the records, I was just kind of concerned. So I just put in um, HIPAA and other privacy. Yeah, which is a but lot. But you know, just so you know, on that section G, it says at the beginning, unless prohibited by state or federal law, that, that include, that pulls in, uh, HIPAA and the California Privacy Act. All right. So I, I don't know. I just, um, only because I, I did it, it didn't like flash out at me. I was just a little nervous. So I added it, but I could just take out that. Yeah, it's problem. not necessary. Okay. okay. We'll take out the HIPAA. Okay. So you're withdrawing your own comment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, but I just want to make sure, um, because, uh, this also included member Wechter wanting to, um, have, our board or individual members access records like that and so I just want to flag all the privacy stuff but we can take out the take out the HIPAA okay so we're in H now uh, yes so so we're just about done really and we may have Marshall present after all <laughs> I have a question yeah. this one for every 100 sworn SF employees oh that was another big yep yeah, sorry thank you for bringing that up Wait, what was your question? I didn't hear. I, I don't. I I need to. I just want to understand what it is. Like, oh, okay. how do we need to spell it out for every 100 sworn employees, as a employees, or for every 200 incarcerated individuals, based on a three-year average, which is greater, whichever is greater. What's the need for that? So, um, under the original language, we remember we had one um, 
investigator for every 100 sworn officers, but now we have an incarcerated population that has grown by 50%. So you could argue that there could be more complaints because there's an increase in the population. So I didn't want to limit it to just one investigator per 100. Um, per one, per 100 um, incarcerated. Is the t intent to increase the budget as necessary? If like yeah, more? yeah. So increase the number of investigators. So let's say the population grew by 50 percent. So we ended up we with a certain percentage warm. of. Um, complaints and whether they're difficult complaints or whatever just when you get a larger population you would expect more complaints so the so I want to have some flexibility in terms of the inspector general being able to hire whether it be by contract or uh, staff okay. to have um, investigators okay the only other thing I mean the second part of that line the San Francisco Sheriff's Office or San Francisco Police Department as a sworn law enforcement officer I do have an issue with this because it's it just only specifies SF um, <coughs> officers or law enforcement, but that opens the gate for other agencies, nearby agencies, does it not? Yeah, so I, I didn't broaden it. I think um, I was just looking at um, something really, really narrow, like if a voter were to vote, it's just really... Well, why not just, why not take out San Francisco and just say sheriff's office or police department as a sworn law? Yeah, we could just do that too. Okay. And then uh, that labor organization was always there. Well, then can I um, just, uh, going back to that comment. So that means though, if RIG has a really, you know, knows of retired Alameda investigators, right? Then they wouldn't be able to apply here because they were previously worked for the police or they previously worked for the sheriff, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought we were all in favor of, um, like, or we, we had the same consensus of allowing law enforcement to apply for these positions because they have a background in investigating and they're good. Yeah, that's what I thought we had previously discussed. So this language to me seems a little different than what we had talked about. So, so we had narrowed it down to what were we thinking, like, what would, a voter think like a, automatically right. about a law enforcement agency because not, we had remember we had just throw the law enforcement agency was so broad that it eliminated people who work for the federal um, office of inspector general um, district attorneys offices um, even investigators who worked in the district attorney so mm -hmm. we were we were just like throwing out good candidates so this is an attempt to narrow it and I you know however you want to narrow it I, not I narrow it but define it I well, de define it, but it also it also narrows the people that we potential candidates because when you just say law enforcement agency, oh. you would have eliminated so many people. So you're narrowing the definition, so to speak. I, I was yeah. speaking in reverse and talking yeah, yeah. to like you're I defining you it for a reason yes, in yes. the charter. So this is saying um, to not allow. We want to allow, right? No, no, we're not, so so. Um, we're, we're eliminating people. I mean, okay, so law enforcement agency, we can agree, was very, very broad. <clears throat> so now the people that we would say cannot apply. You're focusing on the agencies, right? Yeah, and just sheriff and SFPD. What and the then, typical layman would understand as like law enforcement. Right, sheriff, right. De deputies yeah. and the yeah. police officers. And then the question is, do we just say San Francisco because there is a direct conflict? 
Um, so but I mean, even even you know, if you hired someone from another jurisdiction, there could be a conflict. They knew someone. That's where legal comes in and says you can't handle yeah. this case or whatever. So, um, you know, we're not addressing every single little thing. We're just trying to make sure that we're not boxing ourselves in again where we can't hire the best candidates. So, a scenario. So, if there was a candidate that was uh, 30 years law enforcement, he retired from Daly City PD, for example, and then he applied for one of these positions. He wouldn't be allowed, correct? Um, if we if we took out the San Francisco reference, then that that then he person would probably be excluded if we if we took out San Francisco, because then it would be any kind of um, sheriff's office or. But if he leaves San Francisco, then he is allowed. To be yeah, Dude, to okay. be interviewed at least, yeah, right. to be so considered. I think that's good. Okay. So there, I, I see. So there's a San Francisco. The San Francisco then. Adding San Francisco is a way to have a checks and balances that there's not an actual conflict of interest that somebody worked in San Francisco that knows anyone, right? But then I think the concern that other board members have previously raised is that no one that should be in law enforcement should uh, have previous law enforcement experience. You know, it's hard to become an investigator that knows how to do this work without working in a police or sheriff. So that that is just the reality. I mean, I just look at Michelle Phillips, who's come here, and yeah. I mean, she's been there two years, done amazing things. She was a deputy sheriff. She was a probation officer. Mm -hmm. She comes from Baltimore. So I personally, I never want to exclude somebody just based on their title or whatever. I mean, we all bring different experiences, and that's what makes our board strong. So, um, you know, I don't presume that vi the vice president is, like, um, so pro-law enforcement because she's... Um, you know, been a prosecutor before. Um, she has her Who very prosecuted balance. officers. Yes, to say <laughs> right, right. There's a difference. But I mean, there's a balanced viewpoint, and so right. she's also not. You Big know, difference. she's also not anti-law um, enforcement because sure. of the roles that she's played as a prosecutor. So um, I just want to make sure that we were not excluding candidates with really solid experience. I also think, in terms of credibility um, for policy changes. Um, we also are a very union town, and you know, Memory Win represents um, um, labor organizations, and so we have to really be mindful of things that we recommend that they're actually workable and um, acceptable. So that's where I kind of just made it a little bit more narrow so that we could look at other people. But I mean, even then, legal would get involved if somebody came from a jurisdiction. I mean, even if someone came from the east coast they may know something we have you know we have longtime captains who originally came from the east coast so there could still be a conflict and that is up for legal to say you know you can't investigate this case because you know this person i mean that's very basic for attorneys to um, just create firewalls and that kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think my only thing is like you know this was voted in by the public majority votes and the spirit in which this was written was that no law enforcement officer as a typical layman would understand would be leading this um, board or doing the investigation so this is just my, like well, my no, no, but remember the original language was law enforcement agency not officer so here we're defining it so why yeah. not leave it broad and how it was written then because law enforcement agency would exclude people from the district attorney's office a federal office of inspector general, any inspector okay. general. I couldn't, you know, so. Okay, got it, yeah. so which, yeah. which is why we're here to define it. Exactly. I'm okay with this definition if we take out the San Francisco part. 
Okay, so I have like a mixed feeling about that because I think the San Francisco part is meant to be like a okay, we don't want somebody who's gonna, you know, like have a code blue, right? Like they're just gonna go and side with law enforcement because they know that person they're affiliated with. My concern is getting qualified investigators to be able to do this work because how else do you become an investigator to do crime? I mean, it's where do you get your training? Where do you work on that? It's, it's a small, I, I agree with the small pool that we have to work with. I agree, I totally am in agreement with that. But we just inspired the Inspector General, right? That came from a DA background. And I'm, you know, I'm, it's, uh, we had to pick from the pool that we had, the limited pool that we had. I still think very strongly that we should just keep to the sheriff's office and the law enforcement office, officer language. Or the sheriff and the police, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah I see. Mm -hmm. And so we are kind of expanding the pool by narrowing what we mean by law enforcement agency. I mean, yeah. that's, um, I, will, I will say that, you know, um, where I work, we had predominantly sworn officers as our investigators, and about 15 years or so, we started moving towards um, civilian investigators, but, and we have a good combination. Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement. L listen, I mean, oh, going okay. through. So we're okay. told we have four minutes, although that clock says six minutes. <laughs> You have four minutes on my phone. Yeah. Which I okay. Think is that I, I trust our commission secretary. Um, so, so I will note. So, so take out San Francisco and leave it as um, not previously employed by a a sheriff's office or as a sworn office as a sworn sheriff's office or a um, uh, police or a police department as a sworn law enforcement officer. So we'll take out San Francisco references. I mean, I. I think it's important that we do have San Francisco. I see now the point of the adding the San Francisco of allowing us to be able to have a larger pool of investigators that may not be affiliated with San Francisco that have been trained. Because um, we don't want it to be like the like old boys network of, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that, that's kind of what we're trying to ensure is that that doesn't happen. I am concerned about getting investigators with like the experience that we need to actually do a proper investigation. Because if you get investigators that don't know what they're doing, yeah. it's a wrap. Totally. You know? I, I get that. I guess what I'm concerned about is the public perception and the reason in which this board was created is that there is a mistrust. Oh, so, so I thought that seeing San Francisco right up front, it actually would allay their fears that you're <clears throat> having that fox guard the hen house. So, I mean, it could go, I mean, what we could do is just say that we are conflicted on whether or not to have San Francisco in there and then just leave it for the legislative sponsor. Can I ask the question, actually, this actually brings me to a good point. Um, so let's say we propose this, we give it to the sponsor. Are they allowed to make changes? Like, yes. even changes yeah, yeah, they can change it. They can throw with. everything out. They can exclude yeah, us. They can whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, and then, and then even when all the work is done, the voters yeah. can say, we don't like any of it, and they're going to vote it down. So we could do all this work. But what I'm trying to do is make it lay out the groundwork for future generations of our board so, and the Inspector General's office so we can do a better job. That's all. I think, you know... I think a compromise to this situation, given that we are just a recommending body, is that we say there is a, dif a difference of opinions. You know, one. Uh, no, that's what I just said. We're going to like lay it out and just say we're conflict. We're, we have a difference of opinion. Or we're conflicted on 
how we um, how about you do you let me finish <laughs> um, what I was gonna say was that similarly we put the statement of why right for example yours is the original intent right the spirit what you think the original intent was to exclude all persons right but Another side is that San Francisco is a sufficient check and balances to ensure the, the Fox hen house thing. So I think we might want to specify, though, what that Right. Is. I mean, I, I think with all the list of recommendations, I'm also going to put a rationale, and that may be part of yes. how, when you read the stuff in the ballot. It also would lend itself to legislative history when people, you know, 10 years from now, like, why in the hell did they put that in language in there? We will have the documentation. I mean, you know. Legislation is always evolving anyway. Could yeah. I just suggest you just take a pause and offer the general public comment item because you have to yes. do that. Yes, yes. Okay, so are you are you okay with that, Ovava? Just that we're ending it here and then we're going to, okay. Um, so let's move on to. We would need to take a motion though. Right. Yeah, no, you have, have to, to vote, definitely, okay. but I just meant, like, just because I'm comment. worried that if you get cut let's just, off. Yeah, okay, let's just take some general public comment first and then we'll do a Calling line item nine, general public comment. At this time, the public is welcome to address the board for up to two minutes on items that did not appear on this afternoon's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Sheriff's Department Oversight Board. During public comment, neither sheriff personnel nor any board members are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. If you would like to make a public comment, please approach the podium when it is free. There appears to be no public comment. <laughs> okay, so let's um, take up. Do I have a motion? Let's take a, a vote on uh, what we just discussed and having it as a list of recommendations and the various drafts that we have as as um, recommendations in the hands of our city attorney to present to the legislative. Or I guess the city attorney is not presenting, but to provide to the legislative sponsor. It would be that you're. You know, you would Making compile it, and your secretary would, yeah. would send it to whoever yeah. the sponsor is. Yeah. Or you could designate a, per, some, yeah. a member of the board to do that if you wanted to. I would suggest that um, we just do a quick summary of what are the list of the recommendations that we're going to put on so it's very clear, right? And I can do the summary myself if you don't want to. Oh, no, no. Um, I, I, I mean, I took a, a list of the summary, but... Um, the legislative sponsor um, potential one does have just the cleanups, the main cleanups. Um, so. Right, but if or in order for us to just make sure that we're all voting on the same page, why don't we just quickly say, all right, there are going to be technical cleanups, which are the recommendations. Right. We are agreeing to all the sections A to do this, 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 which is only four things substantive. Yes. Right. So that's, that's so that's what I had down in my notes. So so um, so I'm going to summarize that. Um, I don't know. If, I think I will send it to Dan. Jana, I don't, um, is it okay if I send it to Dan and then everyone looks at it and then, I guess we're voting now, but I just want the final document to reflect. If you're gonna vote, you, it should be clear what you're voting on now. Yes. Okay, okay. So, I wrote it okay down. so we're gonna vote. Okay, we so what we went through on the technical cleanups, the line items that we had, and that will be the list of recommendations that will go uh, through Dan to the legislative sponsor. Those changes are to be uh, change the name to BSO, 20 hours at 180 days on Section A5. Uh, on Section E2, to add deputy-involved shootings, remove the suggestion on E1, 
remove the section on E7, remove the section on G, HIPAA, and H to, um, to take out San Francisco or leave for the legislative sponsor to decide. Uh, we're missing something. So we're missing, um, we're missing the, where's the thing? Um, the portions that are in custody, we're going to have SFSO related uh, death and injury. <clears throat> so because there's a reference right now just to in custody. And I believe the recommendation is not just to take out San Francisco, it's just that we have a yeah, it, a difference of opinion. Right, it's to just put it out there. That, and there's two different rationales then, for it. Yeah, and the rationale. And they are as you described. I just want to make sure it's clear what you're voting for. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, I'll move to um, approve those recommendations. And um, I would also, uh, as part of that motion, request that the president be designated as a person to incorporate these, um, provided to Dan and to Jana, our city attorney. And I'll just hold them until, if and when you have a sponsor, is yeah. I guess is, will be I think the we'll process. Know next okay. week. And then I will, um, at, at uh, Member um, Brookter's suggestion, I will also circle with, back with um, All right, uh, is there a second? Supervisor Welton. Second. For members of the public who would like to make public comment on line item six, amendment to the San Francisco 4.137 language, please approach the podium when it is free. There appears to be no public comment. Calling the roll on the motion to accept the amendment to SF Charter 4.137 language, member Afuha Mango. Um, I'm gonna say no, and I'm gonna give my rationale for it. It's because of the potential for the charter to be amended when it goes into the supervisor's hands. And I'm just like worried that something will get passed through, go to the public that I wasn't comfortable with. Like the, if this is the original, if all these changes that we're agreeing upon stays all the way up until it gets to the public, fine with that. But if it's not, then I'm gonna have to say no. I can't hear you, Member Wynn. I'm sorry. So just. Oh, sorry. I was uh, not speaking in the mic. Um, but yeah, I was, I was saying um, with the changes, it still has to go to the public at the end of the day to uh, get, get voted in. So the public will have to make the final decision. So we could submit our suggestions, but it's, uh, you know, what the public wants is what the public wants, and they could vote on it or not. So. And the sponsor. <coughs> yeah, and the sponsor. That's, right. Yeah. We we can't control, we we can only recommend. Yeah. All right, Member Brookter. No, Brookter is no. Vice President Carryon. Yes. Carryon is yes. Member Win. Yes. Win is yes. President Sue. Yes. Sue is yes. There's no quorum. If three is that yeah, so it doesn't pass. So we need a supermajority on the charter. You always need four for any action you want to take. It's not the majority of people sitting here. Okay. It's okay. the majority so of the I, members. So I guess um, down the road, do we want to take this up next month at all? Do we even want to do this at all? I mean, yes, I would recommend that we really kind of figure out our legislative 
um, sponsor. I think that it, it behooves us to show the respect of, to the originating um, sponsor. Know, right, if I wrote um, a book yeah, and you had an I, opportunity to speak to that book writer, yes. just to get, as we're talking about original intent and other things. Right. Yes. I think it's just in the spirit of collaboration. I, I agree. I think, and then we can revisit this because we will have time. Sure. To, and and I, I would feel more comfortable if whoever the sponsor is continues to keep that same language that we all just spoke about. Right, right. But I just, I just wanted I to, that. I think as I was reading what you were saying, though, the voters could just also <clears throat> reject it, and then we're left with our old language where it, we, you know, the inspector general is going to have a harder time recruiting and staffing. That's that's the main thing. It yeah. is it is true, but we also have already previously done a motion to define law enforcement agencies for the purpose of the IG, IG. exactly for yeah. just yeah. police yeah. and yep. sheriff, right? So yeah. if that happens, and you know, I I, I do think that we have time. Right, and also but you can always, in, yeah, well, and you no, can no, always I mean, invite. It has to be by mid-May, so I mean, if we if we would like, we could have an extra meeting. The legislative sponsor has to get everything packaged by mid-May. Yes, so that means they have to get it through their committee and their board of supervisors meeting. So it's not like a lot, a lot of time. And so I wanted to. Just Do you think it would? Right I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to, I just wanted to float it out there and make it easy, and that's why I just had particular documents because once. Attention, sir. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So so when it's not things are not packaged easily, mm -hmm. then they're like, I don't really want to do it because mm -hmm. it's more work. And then we're, st we're stuck in, in budget time. So I was only doing this mainly also to buttress the need to actually staff our office and, <coughs> and having done all the work that everyone associated is very serious. We're all committed and that's why we're also fighting for the budget. So this lends to everything. So um, I will go and um, talk to uh, go back to the legislative sponsors, plural, and um, get a firm commitment, and hopefully I'll have that by the end of the week. Um, if it would be also interesting to hear from their perspective what their thoughts are on this particular um, issue of uh, the law enforcement agency. Yeah, when, and so, when and, those conversations. And sometimes people don't understand the unintended consequences. Like they had the positive thing, but in, in mm -hmm. practical motion, you realize that we need to amend this because it actually was hamstrung us from actually doing our work. I think that people are more amenable, but I also understand the budget too, and I didn't want to disrupt the budget process. So it's, yes. it's a lot going on right now. Yeah. Um, and thank you for all doing all of this work. Absolutely. Also, and whoever the sponsors it. is can watch your meeting because right, they're recorded right. so, and read all of the drafts yeah, because I, they're I attachments. Asked, yeah. So and you I, might invite them to do that. Yeah, I'd ask <clears> them to either, if they want to appear or, or watch it um, in real time, so yeah. Okay, having no uh, quorum of votes, the motion does not pass and is not adopted. Calling line item 10, adjournment action item. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any nays? Meeting is adjourned at 5.09 p.m. All right.